It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino at chumbacasino.com. Choose from hundreds of social casino-style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Are you searching for the best in online black radio? Then go to blacktalkradionetwork.com, helping you filter through the noise. Real talk, black talk. The internet is full of half-truths and all-out lies. We've all seen them, and many people on social media complaining about it. Here's your chance to show and prove. WorldAfropedia.com is a black-owned and operated encyclopedia. There are several thousand articles, but we need help. We can't uncover all the truth ourselves. So please, join us and become a writer, editor, or blogger for WorldAfropedia.com today. Every little bit counts. We owe it to the future generations to put the truth out there. Visit worldafropedia.com, the African-centered encyclopedia, a global database of African knowledge for the purpose of bringing about global African wisdom and understanding. Worldafropedia.com. I ain't going no place, man. I'm going to stay right here. This is it. This is my home, and this is where I'll be. Meanwhile, an intense political battle brewed over how New Orleans would be rebuilt. Did any of these local politicians do anything for you? Have they done anything for you? Suspicions were rampant that the city might use the evacuation as an excuse for a land grab. This damn government don't give a damn about poor people, and especially don't give a damn about black people. Those suspicions were heightened when Mayor Nagin appointed a group of high-powered businessmen to his Bring New Orleans Back Commission. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and thank you, Mr. Mayor. One of the mayor's supporters, developer Joe Canizaro, made it clear that the rebuilt city would have fewer poor people. We're going to make doggone sure that our African-American population is as strong as ever, but I will tell you, We will not have as many poor people. There's no question. I've talked to a lot of them. They're better where they are. They want to stay where they are because they had a better life. Bear in mind that as we went into this storm, we had a lot of crime in our community. We were having lots of difficulties that we were trying to deal with. The commission's job was to recommend a rebuilding plan for New Orleans. Their draft report suggested turning the most devastated areas of the city into green space. This is a process. No one was happy with that proposed plan. None of us want to be in this particular place. Especially not the residents of the Ninth Ward. They focus their anger on Joe Canizaro. Mr. Joe Canizaro, I don't know you, but I hate you. I hate you. Because you've been in the background trying to scheme and get out of land. Just like that lady said, I'm going to die on mine. Pressured from all sides, Nagin shelved the commission's report. From what I can understand, they wanted this section down here for casinos, gambling places, golf courses. 
That's what they wanted to put back in here. Now, I don't know how true that is, but some people say it was in the newspaper. I didn't see it. But if that's what they want, if everybody's like me, they got a tough struggle to get it because I ain't turning this one to loose. Context of white supremacy. Gus T. Renegade in for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy. Today's date, Friday, October 2nd, 2015 so I have been told the audio segment that you heard at the beginning of the program uh, from the documentary film The Old Man and the Storm uh, we had the filmmaker uh, on our program yesterday June Cross Uh, she's done that film many other films and has a new film project uh, on the way out soon Uh, but she was just on the program yesterday and went into more detail uh, just the incredible story of Mr. Herbert Getridge, uh, he has since passed away, but uh, he was in his 80s at the time that you heard him in that sound clip. And he's talking about some of the very figures that will be prominently featured in this week's section of the reading. We are past the storm, looking at the beginning of the quote-unquote rebuilding process. We've already heard about uh, Joe Conazaro and some of the other people that were involved in some of these uh, various commissions, the Bring New Orleans Back Commission and all these other groups that you're going to hear about this week. Uh, outstanding material. Looking forward to get started. Uh, really want folks to kind of keep that in mind as well as we're hearing all this and how this evolves the effort to bring people back and to repair their homes. I really think about the logic in terms of who is most to blame. Again, I'm, I'm not about uh, whining and crying and sticking up for Ray Nagin and saying, oh, woe is Ray Nagin. We need to hook him up. Uh, I'm just saying if we are in a system of racism, white supremacy, and given what we've already read in the book, Let's be logical in our assessment. With that, we will get started. Context of white supremacy. We're picking up in Chapter 10. Gary Rivlin, Katrina, After the Flood, Study Session Number 5. Context of white supremacy. We'll start with audio segment number 1. The third Tuesday night of every month, the Liberty Board of Directors would convene to talk bank business. It had been that way since the earliest days of the bank when they were still in a trailer and the tradition had continued in the new headquarters. It had been an extraordinary moment the first time they gathered on the bank's top floor sitting around a polished dark wood conference table in a spacious conference room that offered soaring views of the east. Liberty's executive offices were modest compared to the hushed palaces some bankers build for themselves. The furniture was high-end Home Depot, the chairs comfortable but not leather. The splurge was in the art that covered the cream-colored walls. McDonald was in his early 40s when he bought his first piece, a Jacob Lawrence limited print for $1,000 that sold for closer to $20,000 when Katrina hit. By 2005, McDonald and the bank owned a trove of artwork by Lawrence, Elizabeth Catlett, and other renowned African-American artists. They lined the hallways and conference room on the building's sixth floor. 
twice the board of directors had the pleasure of gathering in Liberty's new boardroom before Katrina. Their next meeting was held around several mismatched tables pushed together in the back room of a bank branch on the outskirts of Baton Rouge one month after Katrina. McDonald couldn't sugarcoat his presentation to the board. To raise cash, McDonald had started selling some of the $40 million in fixed securities Liberty held onto for emergencies. Already, the bank had taken a $1 million loss on the first batch of bonds it had sold. Liberty was looking at severance for maybe a hundred employees and no telling yet how many tens of millions of dollars in real estate losses. Ronnie Burns, who had been with the bank since the beginning, had been visiting Southern Branch when a set of regulators came around to poke into some of Liberty's records. They were as kind as they could be, he told his fellow board members, but they had this tone. I don't know how this is going to work out. Liberty carried insurance, including flood insurance, on its headquarters and branches, McDonald reassured them. The bank also had business interruption insurance, but that only meant they were in position to negotiate a settlement that would come nowhere near their true losses. The more critical question was what portion of the bank's loan portfolio was backed by flood insurance. From the insurance industry's perspective, Katrina was less a hurricane and more a flood, and while a homeowner policy would theoretically cover damage caused by the winds, it wouldn't cover anything destroyed by flooding. That's why any borrower living in a flood zone was required to buy flood insurance, yet who knew how many people had allowed their coverage to lapse after they had closed on their loan. Without flood insurance, the remaining balance on any residential or commercial loan was a write-off. The magic number, McDonald told the board, seemed to be around 90%. Unless 90% of their borrowers carried flood insurance, the bank might not survive without a government bailout. More pressing was the question of whether there would be a New Orleans East or a Gentilly or a lower Ninth Ward moving forward. Kathleen Blanco had asked Norman Francis, Liberty's founding chairman, to chair the Louisiana Recovery Authority, the state equivalent of the Bring New Orleans Back Commission. Both Francis and McDonald were hearing from influential voices inside the business community about the need to shrink the footprint to right-size a city once home to more than 600,000 that had lost one quarter of its population even before the city flooded. Three of our branches I don't see coming back for a long, long time, McDonald warned the board. As for the rest of the bank, that was anyone's best guess. If we were going to survive, Ronnie Burns said, Alden was going to have to rebuild this thing brick by brick. Where do people sleep? Raja asked the first time her future husband had brought her around to meet his family. On the walls? She had grown up the only child of a prominent lawyer, the princess whose corner of the house included a private bathroom. The McDonald's, by contrast, were a family of seven 
living in a two-bedroom shotgun that didn't include the set of grandparents who lived with the family throughout much of the McDonald's childhood or the stray his sister occasionally brought home. McDonald's parents had the back room. The other bedroom had a pair of bunk beds for him and his two brothers and a double bed for the grandparents. The two girls slept on a sofa bed in the living room and made room for a third when necessary. In a pinch, the small space between the living room and the first bedroom could fit a rollaway. Maybe the biggest challenge was managing the single bathroom. We came apart, said the middle brother, Byron. Their father worked as a waiter at the Boston Club, a place so exclusive no sign was on its building, only an etched B on its frosted glass door on Canal Street. At this whites-only redoubt, Alden McDonald Sr., thin, dark-skinned, and standing over six feet tall, worked his way up to head waiter during a 52-year career. Aaron McDonald, the baby of the family, described his father as real smooth. He worked lunch, the cocktail hour, and dinner at the Boston Club, and often stayed late for private parties or to serve when Rex met there. On the weekends, he was usually uptown working the parties of Boston Club members. He was very highly regarded, Alden McDonald said of his father, though hardly well compensated. This job never paid more than 15000 a year, including tips, and never included health insurance or retirement benefits. If anyone in the family fell sick, he or she saw a doctor at Charity Hospital. McDonald's mother always worked. She was a short, stout, good-natured woman who devised any number of ways for bringing in extra money into the house. She sold burial insurance to neighbors, most of whom paid by the week, and hired herself out as a kind of community taxi service. First in the family station wagon, but then in the van she bought to accommodate more passengers, she carted old people needing to do errands and added extra pickups in the morning when taking her own children to school. She made and sold pickles and candy and, in the warmer months, sold a frozen sugary concoction the kids called a huckabuck. The family never wanted for food but had plenty of nights of stewed wieners, hot dogs, and peas cooked in the same pot. Everyone started working at an early age in the McDonald household. Two of their mother's brothers were bricklayers who ran their own company. By 10 or 11 years old, the boys were working on the pile, as Byron put it, cleaning and sorting bricks, mixing mortar, and dragging the cinder blocks they could not lift. By 13, they joined their father on weekends at the houses of the wealthy white people whose parties the senior McDonald worked. They'd make themselves handy during yard work or mopping the kitchen floor or helping set up chairs for a party. All the kids worked hard growing up, but none more so than the oldest son who always seemed to be doing something to make extra money, whether collecting bottles and cans on the street or getting the siblings into car washing. One Christmas, a 13-year-old McDonald convinced his younger siblings that what they all wanted was a movie projector for Christmas, and then, 
used it to get them into the movie business. He draped a white sheet over a clothesline he had set up in the empty lot next door and then charged kids a nickel entrance fee. It was the mid-1950s. A movie cost 35 cents a day to rent back then, but he'd pick it up on a Saturday because the rental shop was closed on Sundays and that way he got a free day. He also set up a concession stand to sell popcorn and lemonade. He split the take with his siblings who, as part owners of the projector, were his business partners. He always took care of us that way. Byron said he was a good older brother. McDonald wasn't a brilliant student or a standout athlete. He had friends, but not so many or so few that people talked about it. Through his father's uptown connections, he entered a fancy Catholic prep school, but he didn't study hard and they asked him to leave. He graduated from the local high school where he continued to post average grades. I was always more interested in making money than books, McDonald said. He delivered prescriptions for a local drugstore and started a grass-cutting business. He took a job for a local electronics company selling batteries, flashlights, and transistor radios to area stores. McDonald was from the 7th Ward, a working-class enclave. His uncles had done well for themselves, so he figured he'd work as a bricklayer after graduating from high school. At his parents' behest, he gave college a try, matriculating first to Xavier and then to Loyola University, an uptown institution next to Tulane. But college proved a repeat of his high school days. The pest control company that he and a childhood friend had started consumed him more than books. After only a few semesters, he dropped out of Loyola and signed up to study accounting and other more practical skills at a local business trade school. McDonald's big break came courtesy of his father's uptown connections. The senior McDonald was working a party uptown when he heard about the new bank a prominent family in town was starting, the International City Bank and Trust, or ICB. They talked about hiring a few promising young black employees, and the senior McDonald recommended his industrious firstborn. McDonald was 23 in 1966 when he and two other African-American men became the first black bankers in New Orleans history. By 26, McDonald had moved up from part-time bookkeeper to vice president. McDonald routinely worked 18 hours a day. Eventually, he was a free-floating manager sent to help fix any underperforming department. McDonald was a vice president but also a black man without portfolio or pedigree working in an almost all-white industry. Yet, what might have been a fraught situation was made easier by the manner in which the bank's president handled it. He'd call a department head into his office and say, Alden is being brought in to clean up, so whatever he tells you to do, you'll do. McDonald was 29 when a group of black leaders started meeting to talk about establishing the city's first minority-owned bank. They included Xavier President Norman Francis and Dutch Morial, a former state legislator, then serving as a sitting judge, and also a powerful white state senator named Michael Hanley O'Keefe. 
O'Keefe had been a classmate of Francis's in law school and helped them to secure a charter for their bank and to raise two million dollars from a multiracial group of investors. We couldn't have done it on our own, Francis said, and they couldn't do it without the right person to run their startup operation. McDonald said no the first time Francis approached him about going to work for Liberty. He had only been in banking for around six years. He was not ready to leave ICB. Francis laid it on thicker the second time they met. New Orleans needed a bank where all felt welcome, whatever the color of their skin or the size of their bank account. The black community needed a bank to spread home ownership and build a more robust entrepreneurial class. You can be a part of history, Alden, Francis told him. But again, McDonald said no. He only said yes the third time because Francis didn't give him any choice. McDonald wasn't a one-dimensional career man. He was indefatigable and still had the energy to enjoy himself on Saturday night even when he had been at the office since early that morning. I had the party house uptown, but it was Alden who had the party house downtown, said Bill Roussel, a longtime friend. You knew you were going late if Alden was putting on the party. There'd be music and dancing and the alcohol flowed. Shortly after the two met, Raja attended one of these legendary parties, a birthday bash McDonald was throwing for himself. I decided to bake him a cake, she said. When I arrived, I had to put mine next to six birthday cakes that other ladies had made for him. They had met at a fundraiser being held for Raja's father, then a crusading civil rights activist running for district court judge. McDonald, who was still working at ICB, confessed he was there to network. Raja Ortique was there because she was 22 and her mother pushed her single daughter into attending an event certain to draw at least a few bachelors. One of McDonald and Raja's earliest conversations was about the new black-owned bank that people were asking him to run. I think Alden was genuinely scared that he wasn't ready, Raja said. McDonald attended a part-time executive training program in Baton Rouge on LSU's campus. Two years later, he had earned a certificate from LSU's Graduate School of Banking. Raja had been a pioneer in her own right, albeit a reluctant one. In 1962, she had been looking forward to attending high school at Xavier Prep with the rest of her friends. But there was a price for being the only offspring of a crusading civil rights attorney who liked quoting Frederick Douglass's famous line, If there is no struggle... There is no progress. Her father and others were talking about integrating several of the town's more exclusive all-white private schools. So Raja and two others were the first blacks to attend Uptown's Ursuline Academy, an all-girls Catholic school that dated back to 1727. Everyone was perfectly nice to me there, but I never felt that it was my school, Raja said. After Ursuline, she would earn a degree at Xavier University of Louisiana. She had just started teaching for the Orleans Parish School District when she met McDonald. 
the couple would marry two years after they met. Moon Landrew, the city's new liberal mayor, attended Liberty's grand opening in 1972. A stage was set up next to the trailer on Tulane Avenue, a few minutes from the Central Business District. That was the bank's first branch and where McDonald had set up his office. Landrew addressed the crowd, as did McDonald and Norman Francis. A torch was lit that has been a fixture of the Liberty logo from the beginning. This bank represents freedom of our community, McDonald said. A light shining the way for a better New Orleans. They would accelerate black home ownership, speaker said, and provide the essential seed funding to would-be shopkeepers, restaurant owners, and other entrepreneurs in the black community. We were starting to attain political power, McDonald said, but not economic power. 2,000 people opened accounts that first day. Liberty's early days were about survival. I think of the racism still going on then, said Ronnie Burns, who was one of McDonald's first half dozen hires. I think of the odds against any small business. Back then, Burns was the one-person accounting department, but also janitor, courier, and the man who turned the lights on in the morning. Like everyone else, McDonald grabbed a broom if he saw a mess on the floor or picked up a phone if it was ringing. With only $2 million in startup cash, mortgages would have to wait, as would commercial loans. Instead, McDonald started where he knew the need was great. Fairly priced consumer loans for such items as refrigerators, bedroom sets, and home repairs. A lack of banks in the black neighborhoods gave rise to so-called hard money lenders such as household finance and beneficial that charged annual interest rates of 20% or more for loans that McDonald knew would be profitable at less than half that. His customers paid closer to 6%. We saw ourselves as offering financial freedom in the black community, McDonald said. His parents never had much money, but they had faithfully met their financial obligations, and so had their neighbors. Credit score has always been on the bottom of the list for us, McDonald said. We want to hear that person's story and judge eye to eye if we think they're going to pay us back. That's not to say McDonald was anyone's soft touch. Once a week, the staff stayed late to work on delinquent accounts. Each staffer was given the same lesson from the young bank president. See if someone will work with you. Even if someone is willing to pay you just $10 or $20 a month, that shows a commitment he counseled. But the flip side of that was no sympathy for anyone unwilling to agree to a payment plan. Growing up poor, Alden knew what giving someone a break could mean, but he wasn't going to let anyone step all over him, Ronnie Burns said. The banker who didn't like being taken advantage of was on display late one evening when a man owing the bank money on a car told McDonald he had no intention of paying what he owed and then hung up the phone. McDonald had his people call the New Orleans cop they kept on retainer for repossessions and then rode shotgun in search of the car. 
It's like midnight when we find it, Burns said. The off-duty cop jumped out of the car, brandishing a shotgun, while another Liberty employee jimmied his way into the car. I'd go along just to make sure no one does something stupid, McDonald said, but Burns wondered if it wasn't also for a bit of justice. Alden worked hard each and every day, and he expected the people we did business with to do the same, Burns said. It took two years to move out of the trailer and into a permanent building. At the same time, Liberty opened a second branch in nearby Gentilly, another predominantly black community. With Alden, it was all about perseverance, said Bill Roussel. McDonald's old friend from the days when they had competing party houses had become the city's first on-air black television reporter in 1968 before co-founding a marketing company two decades later. McDonald was a natural at marketing, Roussel said, but it was his everyday bunny personality that was the difference. He just kept pushing, 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 and when there were obstacles in his way, he kept moving and eventually he got there. One clever PR gimmick that won the bank attention was what McDonald called five minutes with the president. Anyone thinking he or she had unfairly been turned down for a loan could take the case to McDonald. Most new banks lose money for a few years before they start to make money. Liberty was profitable from year one. In the early years, Alden would scare me sometimes, but he understood the need for us to take risks more than I did, Norman Francis said. Not willy-nilly risks, but the risks that would let the bank serve its core function helping the black community grow. Six years after it opened its door in 1978, Dutch Morial, one of the Liberty's founders, was elected mayor. Soon, the city council majority shifted from white to black. Liberty would become this test of black consciousness in the community, said Jacques Morial, who was 10 when he opened a savings account at his father's new bank using the $20 he had earned working the opening day festivities. The bank opened a third and then a fourth branch. Liberty was able to start offering mortgages shortly before its 10th year. It helped that the competition was guilty of redlining the practice of withholding loans to minority communities in a robust economy. Oil prices spiked from under $10 a barrel in 1974 to more than $40 a barrel in 1980 and the same gushers that made the city of Dallas a perfect locale for a nighttime soap opera about avarice and lust had a big impact on New Orleans as well. The area's refineries and the offshore oil rigs meant opportunities for the ambitious uptown blue blood looking to extend the family fortune. Jimmy Reese, for instance, who made tens of millions of dollars selling them supplies and technology, but it also meant good-paying blue-collar jobs. Liberty also started offering college loans. Again, credit score would prove only a small factor when evaluating someone's risk portfolio. Liberty also started making business loans. The city's main newspaper, the Times-Picayune, 
dubbed Chef Lee Chase, the co-owner of Dookie Chase's The Queen of Creole. Since first opening its doors in the 1940s, Dookie's was the only white tablecloth establishment that served black customers. When it needed money in the 1980s to expand, Liberty loaned Chase and her husband, Dookie Jr., $120,000. Before Alden McDonald, it was hard to even get a conversation with a banker, Lee Chase said. Liberty bankrolled other promising restauranters and also a former Pizza Hut executive who grew a chain of 40 franchises in the area, creating hundreds of jobs. Oil prices crashed in the mid-1980s. Crude had dropped to $14 a barrel in 1986 and remained in the teens or low 20s for a decade. People lost jobs, hours were slashed, the price of real estate plummeted. Liberty posted its first loss in 1987, then its second and third in 1988 and 1989. No local bank turned a profit during those three years, but unlike several others, Liberty stayed open. To save money, the bank organized systems to make sure the paper clip used at the front end of a process would be reclaimed in a box at the end. The bank went more than a year without spending a dime on rubber bands courtesy of a retired postal worker who told McDonald he could get as many as the bank needed from his old place of work. Liberty didn't lay off a single employee. We were well seasoned in survival by the time Katrina hit, McDonald said. The downturn caused heartache but also opportunity. Liberty had helped plenty of young professionals buy homes for $150,000 or $200,000 in burgeoning middle-class black neighborhoods, but McDonald thought of people like his parents who worked hard their whole lives but never had a chance at home ownership. The drop in oil prices meant that a wider range of the population could afford the monthly payment on a house. Liberty created a loan that could be had for a down payment as low as 3%. The way McDonald could underwrite plenty of mortgages for homes costing $50,000 to $70,000 in working class enclaves such as the 7th Ward. The program proved successful enough that Fannie Mae, the government-backed mortgage giant, flew McDonald to Washington so its people could learn more. In the 1990s, the bank opened a branch in Uptown on Magazine Street and another across the river on the West Bank. It expanded to Baton Rouge and Jackson, Mississippi and moved its operations to a larger space in New Orleans East. Liberty put up the money when a group of African-American doctors proposed a multi-story professional building in New Orleans East. It funded small shopping centers and other sizable projects. The bank's original $2 million investment turned into $20 million, turned into $200 million. Liberty had $350 million in assets by the time of Katrina. The layoffs post-Katrina weren't as wrenching as McDonald had feared. People were in Atlanta or Houston or Chicago, and their children were already attending school. 
others felt incapable of getting themselves back to the region. They were in Tampa or Memphis or Oakland, California, because that's where they had people and they were too traumatized to face all that they had lost. Some employees apologized to him that they weren't available to pitch in when the bank needed them. As of the one-month anniversary of Katrina, Liberty had 41 of its 150 employees back on staff. Of the rest, just under 40% said they wanted to return to work but couldn't through at least the end of the school year. 28 people, nearly one in five employees, still hadn't checked in. McDonald seemed to have little trouble settling into his new Baton Rouge life. He replaced his rental car with a silver minivan and he started looking for a house. He figured it would be at least a year before he and Raja were living back in New Orleans. The drive down to the city from the state capital was usually a two-hour trek with so many people using Baton Rouge as a temporary base. Home in New Orleans became the RV he bought so at least he had a bed in town. It sat in the Liberty employee parking lot for three years. On Mondays, McDonald was in New Orleans for the Bring Back New Orleans meetings. Often he stayed the night to take care of other business he had in the city, but the pull of Baton Rouge was still strong. That's where his staff was housed, and for the moment, the bank examiners felt more comfortable meeting someplace other than New Orleans. It wasn't uncommon for him to make a second trip to New Orleans each week as the center of gravity shifted back to the city. Every other weekend, he tried to make it to Atlanta to spend time with Raja. In mid-October, six weeks after Katrina, McDonald snuck away to Europe to join Raja and a group of their friends on a cruise of the Greek islands. The launch point for the cruise, which had been organized before Katrina, was Rome, a city Raja had always wanted to see. The original plan had them spending a week there before joining their friends. McDonald begged off that part of the trip, so rather than enjoying a second honeymoon, Raja hung out with two girlfriends in the $700 a night suite that McDonald had booked months earlier as a gift to his wife, another empty nest splurge by a couple accustomed to far more modest accommodations. McDonald nearly didn't make the second half of the trip either. Arriving in Atlanta a few hours early for his connecting flight to Rome, he headed to the plane's slated departure gate and fell asleep. A last-minute gate change meant that a groggy McDonald was pleading his case to a gate agent ten minutes before the flight, by which time the airline had given away his seat. His break came when he looked down at her ID badge and saw that her name was Katrina. You're not going to believe this, he began. This kinder, gentler Katrina secured McDonald a seat. From the airport in Rome, he headed straight to the ship, then fell asleep in the wrong cabin. McDonald appeared rested and calmer after his return. He even dressed differently, dropping the polos and short-sleeved cabana shirts that had been his attire since the storm. After Rome, casual, 
might be a pair of gray slacks and a white dress shirt stamped with the green Liberty Bank logo that someone had found lying around the Baton Rouge branch. Dressing up meant wearing the blue blazer he had bought for himself after the storm and choosing from among the three new ties he now owned. The bank reopened its first branch in New Orleans in early October, six weeks after Katrina. Lines formed every morning outside the doors of this Liberty Outpost on Magazine Street in the Garden District, its sole property inside the city limits that had escaped Katrina relatively unscathed. The wind had caused a bit of cosmetic damage to the facade of this white-columned building, but nothing, neither water nor looters, had harmed the marble floors or dark wood decor. We have people arriving in from all over, said Anderson Williams, the lobby guard. One day it was a couple who had driven from Atlanta and another who had flown in from Los Angeles. People arrived to fill out change of address cards and to order new checks, but mainly they were eager to learn what was expected of them now that they had lost everything, including a weekly paycheck. Barbara and Robert Emel, the couple who had flown in from L.A., were retired after careers in the Orleans Parish Schools. He had worked as a gym teacher, she as an administrator. These lifelong residents of New Orleans had been with Liberty since its days in a trailer on Tulane Avenue, but after visiting their home in New Orleans East, they were on Magazine Street to close their account. Total. Robert said. We concluded we'd be taking too big a chance rebuilding, Barbara said. Instead, they would look to buy something in Atlanta. The manager of the Magazine Street branch, Sheila Howard, had been with Liberty for nine years. On the Thursday after Katrina, she had shown up at the Baton Rouge branch ready to work. She was living with family in Gramercy, a small town 50 miles west of New Orleans. Donna Walker, a 13-year Liberty veteran who had worked in New Orleans East prior to the storm, was staying with family in the West Bank. A pair of tellers fortunate enough to live in a dry part of the city handled deposits and withdrawals while Howard and Walker cared for customers arriving with more complicated issues. A sitting area that could accommodate a half dozen wasn't nearly big enough, so they brought in extra folding chairs and set them up wherever space was free. A meeting with either Howard or Walker meant waiting an hour or more. We'd bring on more employees, but housing is an issue, Howard said. Eventually, two more employees were dispatched to Magazine Street, but only temporarily. They would be needed across the river once repairs were completed on the West Bank branch, which opened at the end of October. McDonald then hired a marketing company. I want to get out the word that we're alive and well, McDonald said. The lines at Liberty's two New Orleans branches were welcome news, but more people in the city meant they were short-staffed in Baton Rouge. McDonald also had no idea 
when he might reopen a branch in a flooded part of the city. Where will the jobs come from? McDonald asked. And if there's jobs, where will people live and where will their kids go to school? Even McDonald himself couldn't say for certain he would rebuild. In November, he closed on a three-bedroom house he had found near Southern University in Baton Rouge for $150,000. Raja and her parents moved in with him during Thanksgiving week. Raja searched for doctors for her parents while shopping for the furniture and other items they needed to make Baton Rouge home. Cash flow was a big worry. People needed capital if they were going to rebuild and the bank needed to start lending again to make money. McDonald unveiled what he dubbed Katrina Investment Deposits or KIDS. These were nothing but certificates of deposits or CDs offering a below market interest rate wrapped in a feel-good package. The going rate for a CD then was 5%, but McDonald was offering interest rates of between 2 and 2.5%. If I can get 100 friends and banks and corporations from around the country to send me $100,000, that's $10 million, McDonald said. If I get 200, that's $20 million. By October 31st, a friend of McDonald's who ran a big investment fund in Boston had secured roughly $5 million in commitments, primarily from other banks willing to help one of their own. That money would be used to jumpstart home lending, Liberty's primary profit source. Friends in high places could prove critical in the coming months. McDonald had met with Bill Clinton when the former president visited New Orleans a few weeks after Katrina. McDonald had spoken about his decimated bank with the Reverend Jesse Jackson and also with Andrew Young, the former Martin Luther King aide who served two terms as Atlanta mayor. His two most important allies, however, might prove to be a pair of white men who ranked as two of Washington's more successful lobbyists, Robert Livingston and John Bro. Former U.S. Senator John Bro, Democrat, had represented Louisiana in Congress for 32 years before retiring the year prior to Katrina and taking a position at lobbying giant Patton Boggs. Robert Livingston, a Republican, had represented New Orleans in Congress for 22 years. He was several days from taking over as Speaker of the House in 1998 until Larry Flint, the publisher of Hustler, responded to the impeachment of Bill Clinton by offering $1 million to anyone digging up sexual dirt on a Republican member of Congress. Exposed as an adulterer, Livingston resigned from Congress in 1999 and opened his own lobbying shop called the Livingston Group. Bro and McDonald, who had known one another for at least 25 years, spoke after Katrina. McDonald followed up their conversation with a list of items he wanted to see in any recovery package, including a provision dictating that a minimum share of federal aid must be funneled through smaller banks in the region. Bro assembled a team inside Patton Boggs to work on what he dubbed 
a financial industries working group and offered comments that negated the happy talk dreamed up by the marketing firm McDonald had hired. What we're trying to do, Bro said, is figure out how the federal government can help keep them open. McDonald didn't know Livingston as well as Bro, but the former Republican lawmaker offered to help. If ever McDonald doubted Livingston's influence, any disbelief was dispelled when a couple of weeks after Katrina, McDonald complained of some problem he was facing, and by day's end, he was talking with someone inside the White House. Asked why he was offering his services at no charge to someone he didn't know well, Livingston responded, This is a particularly acute situation given this is the largest African-American bank in New Orleans. He would push both the White House and Congress to require that at least $6 billion in federal aid flow through Liberty and the other community banks. Without that, Livingston said, I don't see how Liberty survives. Chapter 11 Blue Sky Boise Bollinger settled into a conference room on the second floor of the Sheraton Hotel on the last day of September. Bollinger, the CEO of Bollinger Shipyards, had spent much of the past month overseeing the cleanup of a pair of wrecked facilities his company operated in the area. He arrived at the Sheraton for his first meeting of the mayor's Bring New Orleans Back Commission, thinking he already knew how dire the city's situation was. Then he sat through the PowerPoint presentation the mayor's team had prepared. The scope of the devastation was hard to comprehend, Bollinger said. More than 100,000 homes in the city had been damaged and most every business was shuttered. Even the weight of the water on the streets for all those weeks meant broken roads all over the city and an untold number of cracks in the 1,600 miles of waste and drinking water pipes beneath them. That was the meeting where we scared everybody so bad, Negan said. I felt obliged to tell them it was okay if they didn't want to come back for meeting number two. The most daunting moment for Bollinger came when fellow commissioner Dan Packer, the CEO of Entergy New Orleans, rose to talk about the city's electric and gas systems. Packer told them about the ruined substations, switchyards, and power plants and confessed that the utility had no idea when they might be able to restore power in much of the rest of the city. He also said it was too early to tell how many tens of miles of cracked gas lines they would need to replace. First, they needed to flush out the salt water, corroding a system that was more than a century old. Marcia St. Martin gave a similarly dire presentation. Her agency may have pulled off a miracle when it dewatered the city in three weeks, but that was only step one in fixing a devastated water and sewer system. Just prior to the storm, St. Martin had instructed her people to open the valves and dump raw sewage into the Mississippi. The decision, while controversial, was smart given the flooding, but one month later, 66 of the pump and lift stations her agency used to move wastewater were still not operational. 
her people were installing temporary pumps and generators around the city. But meanwhile, whatever people flushed down the toilet, untreated product, St. Martin called it, was still being dumped in the river. The agency's two waste treatment plants had been badly damaged, and one of the agency's two giant water purification plants was incapacitated. Even the water they were drinking that day at the Sheraton had been trucked from the West Bank. One quarter of the city's police cars had been destroyed in the flooding. More than half its fire engines were lost, along with a large percentage of its ambulances. More than 200 of its 272 buses had been destroyed. Each bus would cost around $300 to replace unless the city upgraded to hybrids, then the cost would be closer to $500,000. The RTA didn't lose any of its St. Charles streetcars, but falling tree limbs had destroyed the overhead wiring that powered them. But the two dozen pristine streetcars used on the old Canal Street line the agency had revived only 16 months before Katrina were damaged. All 24 would need to be refurbished at a cost of nearly $1 million apiece. The city could count on FEMA to cover a large share of the damage, but the federal law that spells out the rules of disaster assistance called the Stafford Act stipulated that the federal government would only reimburse for overtime pay, not base salaries, and capped at $5 million the amount a municipality could borrow to cover its operating expenses. The city had an annual budget of around $500 million and 6,000 people on its payroll. The city normally collected an average of $13 million in sales taxes each month, but we expect that number to be closer to zero for the foreseeable future, Reggie Zeno, the city's finance director, told the group. The city's second largest source of revenue, property taxes, was also unreliable. The tax was based on the assessed value of a property, but what was a person's home or business worth in New Orleans East or Lakeview? The parking tickets people wouldn't be paying in a near-empty city, the taxes New Orleans imposed on the utilities, which were largely out of commission, these and other fees added up to millions more in missing revenues. The city owed payments on more than $300 million in bonds. Yet its only reliable source of funds, Zeno told them, was the $1.5 million Haraz was required to pay the city every month, even as its casino doors remained closed. Widespread municipal layoffs seemed inevitable. The bad news kept coming. More than 100 of the public school system's 128 buildings had seen flooding, including the district's headquarters. The commissioners also learned that the city was without a criminal justice system. The local courts were closed indefinitely and the evidence room flooded. The parish prison took on four feet of water at its main complex, rendering it unusable. Inmates awaiting trial had been dispatched to prisons around the state where they remained in a holding pattern. The city aquarium, one of New Orleans' leading tourist attractions, had lost 5,000 fish and other creatures in Katrina, and City Park 
at 1,300 acres, one of the country's largest urban green spaces, had lost a thousand trees during the storm. Another thousand were on the critical list. All trade shows and annual meetings scheduled for New Orleans had been canceled through at least March 31st, 2006, in a city third only to Las Vegas and Orlando in convention business. The city's damaged flood control system barely earned a mention that day, but that didn't make it any less pressing a problem. As far as I'm concerned, the levee system is the number one issue, Boise Bollinger said. Because if you can't protect what you're talking about rebuilding, what's the use of doing anything? But Bollinger, a generous donor to the Republican Party, was nothing if not a realist. In the last 200 years, we've had less than five Category 5s hit America, he said. Could the city reasonably expect the U.S. government to pay for a system strong enough to withstand a Category 5 storm when the city's list of needs was so long? Another question no doubt preoccupied many in the room that day. Should the city permit people to rebuild wherever they wanted, even if that meant they were putting themselves in harm's way again, or should the city ban rebuilding in the lowest-lying parts of the city? Even if they allowed people to rebuild wherever they wanted, would they have the money to promise police, fire, and other city services to the whole city? Once a city of 625,000, New Orleans was down below 500,000 people by Katrina, and who knew if and when the population would get back to even 300,000. It will be a smaller New Orleans, Alden McDonald said, except no one has decided which part. A kind of blue sky syndrome infected New Orleans after Katrina. To many, a flooded New Orleans meant a blank slate on which to create a new and better city. Build up, not out, was a familiar mantra voiced in the weeks after Katrina. Entire neighborhoods were being reimagined as parklands, while other parts of the city would be transformed into many metropolises thick with condo developments. The mayor used the Bring New Orleans Back Commission to avoid voicing any opinion on the city's future. We've put a process in place, he repeated. Now let that process work. For residents, though, the mayor's commission seemed one more irritant to endure. People's displeasure was a constant on WWL, which was still the only radio station operating in New Orleans. Anne Marie was on the line from Gentilly, carping to talk show host Garland Robinette about the mayors putting their lives on collective hold for at least three more months. One heard the frustration when the Wall sisters and their neighbors gathered on Monday evenings at True Light Baptist. We're not pieces on a chessboard for people to play with, boomed a speaker at one early meeting at True Light Baptist. Would Lakeview be included on a citywide do not resuscitate list? And if not, what would the neighborhood be like if only half its residents choose to rebuild? Two people not waiting to find out were Artie Foltz and Tanya Osborne. 
Every day, Fultz and his 80-year-old father showed up at their house in Lakeview. Working eight and ten-hour days, they cleared out the ruined furniture and other debris before turning to the mold. You scrubbed, bleached, and let everything dry out, and then did it again, Fultz said. Five weeks after they started, Fultz and his father started to rebuild. Tired of driving back and forth across the bridge to their temporary perch in the West Bank, Fultz, who was 53, camped out in a bedroom on the second floor, though technically he was in violation of the mayor's look-and-leave policy. The first thing we did was put in a hot water heater so I could wash up, Fultz said. Let some Blue Ribbon Commission tell them Lakeview should revert to swampland. By the time the mayor's commission would get around to making any grand pronouncements, Fultz, Osborne, and other like-minded pioneers scattered around the flood zone would have invested tens of thousands of dollars in their homes. Declaring any part of the city off-limits to redevelopment would mean destroying homes for a second time. Freddie Yoder didn't plan on giving a speech at the big rally some of his Lakeview neighbors had organized near the breach in the 17th Street Canal. But even the elected officials who spoke that day weren't providing answers. People were desperate for information, Yoder said. They were desperate for some semblance of hope, and they were getting neither from their government. Would people need a city permit to start gutting their houses? The answer was no, but the question elicited an ambiguous response. Whose job was it to cart away the ruined insides of their homes? Yoder knew the Army Corps of Engineers was responsible for the cleanup, but the person posing the question was told, I don't know. So in front of a crowd, he estimated at 500 people, Yoder stood up to share what he knew. Yoder was president of Durr Heavy Construction, one of the largest construction companies in the New Orleans metro area. His firm laid the sewer and drainage lines in the city's public housing projects. They installed water and electrical systems in buildings throughout the region. In the aftermath of Katrina, no one needed Yoder for the kind of underground systems that were Durr's specialty, but his firm owned trucks and other heavy equipment. A call from Phillips and Jordan one of the big multinationals hired by the federal government to help with the cleanup proved a double payday for Yoder, a past president of the Lakeview Civic Improvement Association and still a member of the organization's board. I was hired to do all the storm recovery work in Lakeview, Yoder said. Helped with the dewatering, pushed aside debris, removed vegetation, picked up debris, hauled it to the landfill. Yoder is heavy set with sleepy eyes and a matter-of-fact attitude, even toward the eight feet of water that covered his neighborhood for weeks. To me, Katrina was just something you have to get past, he said. At the rally, he answered people's questions, but more important, he reminded the community that it had the resources, the pull, and the drive to survive. Don't let anyone tell you Lakeview isn't coming back he told his neighbors, we're coming back and stronger than ever. A week after the city's finance director 
laid out the grim news for the Bringer New Orleans Back Commission, Megan held a press conference to announce he was laying off half the city's workforce, nearly 3,000 people. Each of the laid-off employees would receive three months' pay dating back to the day of the storm. We've talked to local banks and other financial institutions, and we are just not able to put together the financing necessary to continue to maintain our City Hall staffing at its current levels, the mayor told reporters. Most of those laid off were clerical and support staff, so the city was cutting closer to one-third of its personnel expenses rather than half. One exception was the planning department. At a time the city seemed desperate for experienced planners, the mayor shrank that department from 36 to 8. All 7,000-plus employees of the Orleans Parish Schools were placed on what the district called disaster leave without pay and then laid off in mass. That meant more than 10,000 public employees, a large portion of them black, were out of jobs at the time most were also without a home. Layoff notices had been sent to people's pre-Katrina addresses and directed teachers seeking an appeal to show up at an office that had been closed since the flood. Teachers had contracts and most were tenured, yet the authorities maintained no recall list. Teachers were free to apply for a job when new schools reopened, but no one would be guaranteed a position no matter what his or her seniority. A lawsuit filed by teachers would drag through the courts for years. The city looked to Baton Rouge for help, but it was New Orleans' further misfortune to need the state when officials were reeling not just from Katrina, but also Rita. The twin strikes meant disaster zones in both the southeast and southwest corners of the state that flooded a combined 125,000 homes. New Orleans would need to share whatever money the feds dispersed through the state with more than a dozen other parishes. Workers who had lost a job because of Rita or relocated to someplace outside the state meant tens of millions more in lost state income tax. Fewer cash registers operating in the southwest corner of the state meant millions more in missing sales tax money. Greg Albrecht, the chief economist for the state's legislative physical office, calculated that the two storms added up to nearly $1 billion in lost revenue. Citing a state statute that dictated that a governor must keep her budget in balance, Blanco, at the start of October, summoned legislators to Baton Rouge for an emergency legislative session. Then, even before they arrived, she announced more than $400 million in unilateral cuts, including the entire budget of New Orleans Charity Hospital. Charity had suffered relatively minor damage, but keeping the hospital closed saved the state tens of millions of dollars. Charity's patients aren't in the city Blanco rationalized. They're in Houston or Philadelphia. Blanco proposed that the state cover the remaining $600 million deficit by dipping into its reserves and issuing bonds. The emergency session 
proved another blow to a governor whose approval rating had already fallen from a pre-storm 55% to 38%. Blanco took flack from Republicans who charged that she didn't go far enough in making cuts, but her left flank was what worried aides. The governor had good relations with the legislature's Black Caucus, but several days into the two-week special session, they sued, charging Blanco with breaking the law when she slashed the state budget without legislative approval. In this tragic time, we can't balance the budget on the backs of poor people and the backs of the very people displaced, said Representative Cedric Richmond, who represented parts of New Orleans in the state legislature. No one questioned the governor's claim that Charity's patients were living elsewhere, but members of the Black Caucus and others argued many couldn't come home without a hospital for the working poor and others without insurance. Charity would remain closed while their suit worked its way through the courts. The legislature and the governor agreed on at least one issue, a bill that stripped Orleans Parish School Board of control over most of the city's public schools. The schools in New Orleans had been a preoccupation of the governor's even before Katrina. Louisiana's school system was one of the poorest performing in the country, ranking as low as 46th in student achievement, and Orleans Parish scores ranked it second to last among the state's 64 parishes. The year before Katrina, school officials admitted they couldn't account for $60 million in expenditures. While the main culprit was sloppy accounting, not malfeasance, as a punishment, an outside management team was put in charge of the district's finances. Shortly before Katrina, the state legislature had granted the governor the right to take over schools the state's Department of Education deemed unacceptable, mainly as a tool for fighting school failure in New Orleans. Two months after Katrina, the state took over more than 100 schools in Orleans Parish, leaving the city's elected school board with control over only the eight schools whose test scores were too high to permit a state takeover. A recovery school district was formed and the state's superintendent of schools signed an emergency suspension of education laws that helped ease the way for charter schools by stripping teachers and staff of the right to vote on a school's fate. The storm gave us the perfect opportunity to rebuild the school system from the ground up, Blanco said, and I was intent on seizing that opportunity. Critics accused her of using a crisis to overreach her authority, but to Blanco, it was possibly the flood's only silver lining. Context of white supremacy. Finished with the second audio second. Needed a brief respite. Take care of a minor issue, but we should be all ready to roll. Uh, first audio segment down, uh, one more segment to go uh, before uh, session ends. The number to dial for all the folks who would like to uh, chime in, share their views, uh, 641 The code 
is five, six, four, nine, four, three pound. Press star six if you would like to participate. The number again, six, four, one, seven, one, five, three, six, four, zero. The code is five, six, four, nine, four, three, pound. Press star six if you would like to participate. Uh, for folks who do not want to use uh, their phone to dial in, you can use the free Vope line. Uh, should be linked at Black Talk Radio Network. Uh, if you can't find it, uh, the address is tiny, T-I-N-Y dot C-C forward slash one race. And that is the number one. Uh, the address again, tiny, T-I-N-Y dot C-C forward slash one race and that is the number one uh, when you put in that address you'll see the link on the left side of the page uh, for the vote line uh, click it it will open a small window on your screen uh, you will see on the first line it's a drop down menu select the number that I just gave out which again is six four one seven one five three six four zero the next line it will ask for the code that code again is five six four nine four three and then the final line it will ask for a name you can put in a real name nickname you can press random keys whatever you're comfortable with once you get all that information entered uh, just click the green button at the bottom uh, it will connect you to the live program and you should be able to hear us uh, it's the same procedure if you would like to participate. You'll see the dial pad on your screen. Press star six. Uh, once you do that, you'll hear the little audio prompt for one, and we'll be able to get you on the line. Uh, all the folks uh, who dialed in should be with us. Uh, feel free to chime in. I did have one uh, quick correction uh, when they were talking about the cost of repairing uh, some of the trolley cars and what have you uh, transportation that they were having and I said the cost was $300 that was $300,000 and then it was uh, an increase of $200,000 putting it at a half million dollars if they went with the solar options to repair uh, some of the transit vehicles that they had but it was $300,000 per vehicle not $300 Anywho, uh, all the folks who dialed in uh, thus far with the hand up uh, should be with us. Uh, I think uh, Mr. Demery four, uh, and if I had to guess, maybe Karma. I'm not sure. <laughs> Those two should be with us. I'll nab by the hands as I see them. Yes, may I be heard? Yes, sir. Okay, greetings, guys. Greetings to the callers and listeners. Uh, what stood out to me at first was. I was always impressed with Mr. Alvin McDonald and his uh, ability to keep the bank, you know, together after this uh, crisis. But what stood out to me about him doing this reading was he had a BMW two-seater that was ruined. Uh, 
His Lexus was smashed by the debris. The roof on his house was damaged, and he had furniture soaked with dirty water. Uh, but he felt that the rosary that the Pope John Paul had given him, and along with the plate that the Pope had eaten on, were miracles because they were still not harmed in the flood. I thought that that was uh, pretty amazing. But it just goes to show that no matter what position or status in life that you hold, the deceptiveness of white supremacy affects all of us. And you can be affected and show signs of brainwashing and not even know. And we'll go to the Liberty Bank uh, carried insurance and that the barriers that was living in the flood zones were required to, to buy flood insurance. But without the flood insurance, the remaining balance would uh, be a write-off. <coughs> Excuse me. So it, it, it dawned on me that, you know, just reading that, it seemed like that as far as the bank was concerned, it would be better if the uh, borrowers didn't have uh, flood insurance. But as you read further, <clears throat> he said that if 90% of the borrowers had flood insurance, then... Uh, he would have to go uh, for a bailout from the government. So uh, maybe I was uh, confused or maybe I didn't get it right, but I, it looks as though that the bank could handle a 10% uh, write-off, but not anything over that. It would, it would cause a serious deficit with the bank. And you can't blame Mr. McDonald for, you know, being concerned uh, with the assets. I mean, that's his job. The, I guess the uh, health, well, not the health and welfare, but the uh, wage, uh, the uh, asset loss by the barriers, you know, it would depend upon them whether or not they had insurance and could sustain this type of uh, uh, catastrophic uh, natural disaster. I know page 147, uh, when Alden McDonald was working <clears throat> with the ICB, you know, I guess he was a brilliant young man and was known for problem solving. And, but working in a mostly white environment, the vice president had to call a meeting to make sure that the other white employees didn't practice racism on him and that anything that he asked them to do, that they had to do it. So he had to have the weight of the vice president behind him just to even get the white people to do what he asked them to do. And I want to say something about household finance and beneficial those uh, loaning institutions uh, 
predatory lending, you know, that are predominant in areas that are mostly non-white, charging up to 20% interest on loans that could easily have been 6%, and they still make a profit. I have a problem with the word black community because according to the <clears throat> Mr. Neely Fuller's word book, I uh, should use caution when you're using this word because, or ask for an explanation. What is a black community? Is it even possible for blacks to uh, form a community in a system of white supremacy? And even if they did, why wouldn't it just be a community? Why does it have to be labeled as a black community? And the only answer to that would be so that they could be mistreated or uh, practice racism upon. Uh, also, redlining is another strategy that they're using to mistreat non-whites in the mortgage industry. And Liberty was able to make mortgages affordable for working class families. White banks could have done the same thing earlier. So it just goes to show uh, a dedication and uh, intentional uh, overcharging, redlining, and mistreating uh, potential uh, black barriers and potential black homeowners. And last, I'll bring out that it looked as though, well, when the money or before the money started flowing into the state and through and to New Orleans, that the white people that were most in charge, like Bollinger and Karen Carnell Zaro, wanted to make sure that the rebuilding in New Orleans go the way that they wanted to go before they did they okay on the uh, funding. I'll mute my line. Thanks for taking the call. For sure. For sure. I uh, forgot to get in my disclaimer. Uh, Mr. Dimley was fine. Um, and most folks have, have been fine. I'm just uh, getting to get my request in. And folks, if we could keep our commentary uh, limited to the section of the book that we discussed this week, or if you have references to things that came up before, that's fine. But uh, I know there's a, a tendency for people to be a little off topic onto just anything that happens to relate to New Orleans or anybody that might have come up, uh, things that are not really related to uh, what we are talking about specifically this week and and even not going uh, far forward, just because, as I said before, we are still not halfway through this book. A lot of the things that are going to happen more recently, they are going to come up later in the book. So we're just hopping ahead. Let's just, you know, dissect what we got right here in front of us. Uh, other folks that uh, have a hand up, have commentary they want to share. Um, good evening, everyone. It's Karma. Um Okay. The the thing about that bank being on Magazine Street in New Orleans, that's that's a white, and it's like it, and so I, I 
presume that everybody assumed the police and everyone, all the law enforcement officials, assumed that that was, you know, if it's in a white area, that must be one of ours. So we won't loot that one. You know, and it's just uh, anything in a black area, just destroy it. But if that bank was on Magazine Street, then I'm sure they just, they just assumed that was a white person. Even if it said Liberty, they just assumed still that it just had to be a white person, maybe. And that's why they didn't loot it. And another thing is, you know, those people who said, I, I lived in I lived in Atlanta, New Orleans. I don't know, there's just something incredibly oppressive about the racism. Racism is oppressive everywhere, but there was something about Atlanta to the point where I just jumped in my car and I just fled. That was it. I said, I got to go. See you later. Call me. Call me next year. And so those people who were running, they said, well, we won't rebuild. We're going to go someplace safer. We're going to go to Atlanta. They don't have 86% homeownership in any area of Atlanta by black people. I think that they went, uh, even though, you know, they were white, well, white people got an opportunity to practice some extraordinary racism in New Orleans, you know, they, uh, Atlanta seemed like a harsh place. I think they jumped from the frying pan into the fire. And I think that they thought they were running from water when actually they were just running from racism and that doesn't do any good. So they just began to the, they were just trying to run from racism because that's really all it was. And the last thing, I'm feeling uncomfortable with Mr. McDonald. He, boy, this is really like, you know, a Mr. McDonald book. It's so pro-McDonald. I just never had warm and toasty feelings about a banker before. So I'm finding that a little bit uncomfortable. And then plus, I mean, how is it that you have the mindset to accumulate all of these millions and millions of dollars in, in assets, and yet all of your assets are gone and you're flooded? Hey, we're just cool, me and my wife, living in a trailer park, no problem. It's not even stressful on us. We're just cool, hardworking people. I don't know. To me, there's a dichotomy there. It, it just, I don't know, it's just something, I'm missing something, I guess. But then I'm I'm very suspicious. So that's it. Thanks. Right on. If uh, other people have comments, feel free to chime in. Uh, we have uh, about 20 minutes before we get to the next audio segment. Um, with Mr. McDonald, I forgot to say this as well. Uh, Miss Anitra Brown with the New Orleans Tribune. She is aware that we are reading this book, and she said if there are folks in the book in the New Orleans area that you know we think it would be interesting, worthwhile to uh, try to chat with them uh, to let her know, and she you know be down to try to help if she can uh, to see if we could get them on the program. Uh, and she said yes, she might be even able to help with uh, Alden McDonald getting him on the program to to chat it up more um I think uh Mr. McDonald the book I didn't know that he was going to be like one of the prominently featured characters in the book I did know that you know there was a good bit of information in the book about him I was aware that there was a good bit of information in the book about him uh, because the piece in the New York Times that Mr. Rivlin wrote about this featured exclusively on Mr. McDonald and kind of the ordeal 
in uh, the New Orleans East uh, in areas other than the Ninth Ward. Um, and he had uh, just, you know, a lot of it, a lot of the stuff that we'd heard so far. Some of it was in a condensed form in this this uh, short piece for the for the Times. Uh, I was, you know, curious to get other people's feedback on that in terms of what they thought. You have this white author writing and giving a lot of detail, uh, not just about how Hurricane Katrina impacted uh, Mr. McDonald and, you know, their whole family, Rasia and her parents and everything, but uh, kind of the whole history of this bank in New Orleans and how it came together and what their aim was and trying to help black people and blah, blah, blah. Like, that is... It's fascinating, at least to me, it's fascinating on uh, many levels. Um, I don't know. Does anybody anybody else have have other thoughts on the on the the book focusing so much on Mr. McDonald uh, and this being a white author? What we've heard thus far. Uh, what are what are people's thoughts on that? Well, I mean, I was really taken by the statement that he said his very best friends would be the two white lobbyists. Why were you taken by that? I mean, why would why would you ever think that of all the people who would be your best friends would be two white lobbyists? I mean, those people are cutthroat lobbyists or something else. They are vicious. <laughs> I mean, I never thought of them as if well, not as a friend to black people under any circumstances. I've never seen them lobby for anything for black people. Maybe I'm just missing the lobbyist, but it's just always just always politics politics nothing for the people hmm. i guess to to be accurate because i did highlight that portion of the text uh he said friends in high places could prove critical in the coming months mcdonald had met with bill clinton when the former president viewed new orleans a few weeks after katrina mcdonald had spoken about his decimated bank with reverend jesse jackson and also with andrew young the former Martin Luther King aide who served two terms as Atlanta mayor, his two most important allies, however, might prove to be a pair of white men who ranked as two of Washington's most successful lobbyists, Robert Livingston and John Bro. Um, so he didn't call them friends, uh, and he also uh, used the conditional tense. He called them allies, uh, important allies. Uh, and he also used the conditional tense of might. <laughs> so this is this is not a slam dunk. Uh, and just continuing with what he what he said in the text in terms of them uh, lobbying to make sure that small banks uh, were included, small banks in New Orleans were included so that they were getting some of this uh, money that that did help Mr. McDonald. When I heard that, to me, it, it again just reminded me the phrase I mentioned, I think, last week on the program with Mr. Fuller, when he says white people have the ability right now to produce justice right now, this very moment. They could do it in the blink of an eye. Just these two white guys, not a whole lot of people, not stomping up and down, marching, getting hashtags, protesting, doing a die-in. Just two white people can be enough to solve your problems as a black person, victim of racism. I, to me, it just it revealed the enormous power imbalance in the system of white supremacy. Not that these two white guys are friendly and looking out for black people, but just they have the ability, they have the power to get things done if they so choose. And it did seem like he included information that they did try to do some things to help Mr. McDonald. I would also add that uh, Mr. McDonald along with those allies, um, all were in it, you know, to make money. So, I mean, you can see why 
uh, well, we already know that uh, whites uh, profit from practicing white supremacy. So when you have a catastrophe like that, then uh, the first thing that jumps off is when the money begins to flow, everybody that's involved, you know, will get a piece of it from the beginning. And then if there's anything left, it can flow to those that are most in need. That's the way that I look at it. Uh, some of the other folks uh, who chimed in with a hand up, uh, you should be with us as well. I think uh, Thomas in New York and 404. Good evening. Can I be heard? Evening. Good evening to all. Um, yeah, I think that what the point that Mr. Demery just made was good. I was thinking of it from a different angle. Um, just the catastrophic loss and everything from Katrina and how Mr. McDonald's um, records wasn't backed up. Um, just the level of this organization um, that they, you know, showed. Um, I thought it was the author um, practicing racism. Um, pretty much to say, you know, look at this bank, this black bank. And, um, you know, your money's not even backed up, you know, you're, they're paying all this money a month to Philadelphia and their, their, their files aren't even backed up and, you know, their, their buildings are all underwater. And, you know, I, I just feel like it, it just shows, I'm quite sure that if there's a, a chase or, or a city gate or something in, in New Orleans, their top executives aren't out sending people in boats to pick up records that, that are needed to back up all the files. You know, it's, it's just, to me, showing a level of dysfunction within the black organization. But um, so Mr. Demery made a great point, too. Um, later on, they, you know, they, they might need him to get some of that money, you know, um, to, to make some of them deals they want to make, um, to have someone in their pocket from a, a big-time black thinker. And um, even though they're the gentrifying the city, you know, it, it still looks good to have that black ink girl on the stage, which, you you know, we're not really gentrifying the city. Look, we got him here. You know, it, it, it kind of plays out in their favor either way. Um, I like the part about the, um, not to say like the part, but I think the, the writer went in depth about the catastrophic, um, the way they, they just destroyed the public education system um, in New Orleans. And, you know, pretty much the Blanco was responsible for turning it into an all charter, uh, which is usually a Republican platform. So I'm quite sure she was under a lot of pressure. But um, to turn it into an all charter school system, um, yeah, they went into death. All those black people lost their jobs. I'm, I'm just thinking, you know, that the people that are cleaning the schools, the, the, the people that are serving the lunch, the, the, the vendors that, that deliver the food or certain things to those schools were probably all, for the most part, black in a city that's about 70% black, you know, and for all those jobs to just be gone, just because of a law, you know, or them passing the injunction or something, it was just crazy. It was just catastrophic loss of income, you know. And, and 
And on top of that, you don't have a house either. You know, it's so sad to hear. I'll mute my line. Thank you. Uh, 404, did you have commentary? Well, she said she was driving last week. She might not be able to chime in at this moment. Um, I guess I would I would also throw in, uh, since we are less than halfway through the book, it might be, uh, this might be a good question to revisit at various points in the book, particularly after we kind of see where the trajectory uh, of the book goes and, and how things stand closer to the, to the close. Um, I know from cheating and reading the article that this doesn't uh, this doesn't exactly end well with rainbows and everything uh, for the black people. Uh, I'm not saying, you know, Mr. McDonald is is hurting or anything like that, but it uh, I mean, it's still a system of racism, white supremacy. So (laughs) that said, um, some of the other uh, tidbits that uh, stuck out to me uh, during the course of the reading this week, uh, we already touched on the two uh, white people, uh, Robert. Livingston and John Bro um, just seemed like they had to go through a lot. Like, I think it was maybe two weeks ago we had the section where they were comparing Mr. McDonald to his quote unquote peers. They were talking about like other white bankers. And it just, I think Mr. Dermot Forrest, it just seemed like, wow, this is really, really hard <laughs> to like to, to maintain. I uh, know, I think they, they said he had at the time before Katrina, he was like, one of the six most profitable, most successful black banks. And, and they moved up the charts uh, since then, which is great. But I mean, man, it seems uh, it just seems really, really difficult uh, from all the way back. when you get all this information about them starting out and having a trailer and the type of racism that was uh, rampant at the time still exists today. And in terms of redlining and what have you and making it so difficult for them to get rolling. Uh, as a bank and then having to go through all this getting a guy out in a boat to try to save the bank and the records aren't there so you're off the network you don't have much money uh, you have in in the accounts and all that I mean it just seems really really challenging all the way around um, to try to to try to maintain all of this especially so being you know a black bank having the the folks come in and snoop they're thinking oh this is about to fall like man we better, uh, you know be prepared to throw in the towel I mean it just seems really challenging uh let's see some of the other things that stood out okay oh man the boston club where mr mcdonald where he's talking about Uh, His dad uh, was a waiter at the Boston Club, a place so exclusive no sign was on its building, only an etched B on its frosted glass door on Canal Street at this whites-only redoubt. Alden McDonald Sr., thin, dark-skinned, and standing over six feet tall, worked his way up to head waiter during a 52-year career. Uh, if If you get the the DVD for when the levees broke. If you, uh, if you watch it with the audio commentary with Spike Lee, uh, he talks about the Boston club and how very powerful, uh, suspected race soldiers. Uh, this is where they hang out and make decisions about what is going to happen, uh, in the city of new Orleans, Southeast Louisiana. Uh, they didn't say Ray Nagin, was a member there or hanging out or what have you. It's a powerful, 
white people. Uh, and even trying to imagine like his dad working there for 52 years for nickels uh, and the amount of, you know, just blatant terrorism that he had to pay. And particularly, I mean, woof, you're talking working there in the 1950s in Louisiana. Man. Um, moving forward, I am appreciating the detail uh, about, you know, the whole journey and, and what was required. Uh, Mr. McDonald, and, and even with that, them doing this, talking about how it required white people, white investors to put up the initial seed money, the initial capital, then get this rolling and talking about the involvement of Moon Landrew, uh, just the power that white people have. Uh, I think even Mr. Fuller talks about this, that they make it so difficult, particularly if you're trying to do something that is constructive and on a larger scale, they make it so difficult to do something without them being, you know, signing off and, you know, being involved in what it is that you're doing. Uh, that again, the system of white supremacy, uh, let's see. Even their little, uh, courtship period in the end, uh, beginning, I thought that was, uh, Right on. <laughs> Just to include black love, right, Pam? She should be uh, coming down the pike on the program soon. Um, Moon Landrew. I feel like there's been an effort to present certain white people as being not racist, even though he hasn't used those terms explicitly. Uh, Moon Landrew, uh, Joe Conazaro, uh, Robert Livingston, uh, John Bro. Uh, I'm sure there's some others. Uh, I'll, you know, I'll pick them out as we go. But those are at least four. Uh, where I feel like they get presented as, see, these are good white folks. They're not racist. See, they're they're helping out black people. See, Joe Conazar, he got bikes and stuff for black people. And, you know, I don't think he I think he even said that explicitly last week uh, about, you know, you shouldn't just think of him as some Republican donor white guy. You know, he's more complex than that. I think that at least in my view, that might be a deliberate act of racism on the part of Gary Rivlin uh, and how the book is structured. It has to be something that we pay attention to. I'll be paying attention to as uh the book continues. Uh, let's see. Dallas television and big deal. Uh, let's see. We have about 10 minutes left. Check in. Make sure I don't have any notes that I left out. Yeah, I think I might be good. Ray Nagin is going to come up pretty strong in the second portion, so I'm sure I have a lot to add there. Uh, folks have other comments they wanted to make sure they got in. If for, for if you're uh, able to talk, you can feel free to drop in as well. Other folks have commentary they want to make sure they get in. Yes, Beth, can I be heard? Yes, ma'am. Yes, as usual, I'm always a little road driver. Just managed to make it cold in. But um, thank you. Greetings to you, Beth, and greetings to the other listeners on the line. And what stood out for me is um, to what Mr. Demery for was referring to with the the artifacts that he received from Pope John Paul II and looking at it as a miracle, the, the cross as well as the plate. And let's not forget the Virgin Mary that was in the backyard that he said when the tree split, it split in such a way that the Virgin Mary did not get destroyed when this tree just kind of split and she was left undamaged. So you can see the Catholicism and the miracle and this, worked its way into that portion of the narrative. Another thing that stood out for me was the the McDonald's and their honeymoon and their white identification as well as their 
out there, Catholicism played a role in their choice of vacation. They went to Rome, which, you know, the Vatican is an outpost of Rome. It's right outside of Rome, where the headquarters for the Catholicism, as well as their tour of the Greek Isles, which is also in reference as, as Greece being an older civilization, which we know that's a lie. But this is all playing an impact as a, as a part of how they're uh, bringing in the church and how it has fostered into black people who are not uh, that much in tune with their African education as Rome and Greece being the center of the universe and the so-called founding of civilization, I guess European civilization, because black people are already civilized and was teaching these barbarians what it is that they need to know. But that shows the part how that played a very um, decision in where they chose to go. They didn't choose to go to the Caribbean or maybe go to Africa or someplace like that for a honeymoon. Their honeymoon was tied into Europe, to Europe, Catholicism, and all of the so-called markings of their religious faith tied into their Christianity. The other thing that stood out to me was Mrs. McDonald when she said she went to Ursuline, the private um, all-girls Catholic school in New Orleans, as well as because um, Xavier Prep and Ursuline was one of those prestigious Catholic schools in New Orleans where a lot of people with money send their children to. And for her to say that when she integrated that school back in the early 60s and to say that she did not experience racism or everyone accepted her, I think that she has, her memory must have clouded over over the time because we can't forget what happened when they tried to integrate New Orleans Public School with that young child, Ruby Bridges, when she had to be escorted by U.S. Marshals to get her into that school and they had to stick around all day long in order to make, ensure her safety and she was still bombarded with racism with the teachers as well as the other students. And that was a public school. So I could imagine going to a Catholic school with all of these white people, I knew it had to have been a bad situation, but people tend to want to romanticize events as the years wore on, and plus, as it's been a part of our Catholic faith, tends to kind of brush it off as, you know, to move on in life. But, um, what household finance as well as beneficial finance, these are, um, as you said, these were the forerunners to all of these predatory com companies in the, the community, such as these with the own, they, they had their start in that. And Mr. Demery was being very generous when he was given the 20% um, interest rate. It was, it was higher than that. I would say it was more along the lines of 30, 30 or higher percentage was their interest rate that they were charging black people back in those days and within which if you want to get financing from them. There was another one also along that line called Franklin and all of these institutions that originated in the northeastern part of the country because I believe beneficial household finance they later on merged. They came out of the somewhere around the Boston, Philadelphia area was where they were headquartered, where those companies came from and they were very, very predatory in the, in the black community. They didn't mind lending you, but then again, you didn't mind, they didn't mind coming back in and repossessing whatever collateral that you put up to cover whatever loans that they offered. And the, the other thing that to touch on with these two men, Livingston, who was about to become the Speaker of the House, the same position that John Boehner resigned from when the sex scandal was discovered on him, 
as well as um, John Bro, who was the senator that retired, and then they all went into lobbying. These men, they had very powerful position. Like Livingston was a, was a member of the House Ways Means Committee, which is the highest office or the most prestigious post that you can aspire to as a member of Congress, as a congressional rep. John Burrow was a part of the, um, was the Banking and Finance Committee. So having these men to open doors and plus when you are lobbying and they use their insider information as being members of the Senate within which to wiggle their way in and get them access to information, it would be beneficial Mr. McDonald because having these two men, as he said, he, he ran into a problem and he contacted Livingston and within a matter of hours he was talking to someone in the White House and he got the matter situated. So sometimes it's best to, you know, to be connected with a small devil who could get in contact with the big devil within which to get you things done. And it so it happened to work out in favor for Mr. McDonald. So, but your opening clip that you played when they went after the um, the white guy, you said, I think you believe you said he's been now, now deceased. The man that was in that clip that was saying, no, he was not leaving. I'm glad to see that some black people finally were seeing this man for who he was. Because here this man came from nothing, was a regular salesman, and he managed to accumulate all of this money, being predatory and using all of these things um, within which in New Orleans, within which to move up the food chain. So that is a good, that is a good thing. So it, it sounds like it's a plus, so I'm not going to rattle on much. But, you know, so far, this is, this is to be very, this, this has been a very interesting um, reading so far in this portion, and I'll pause here and let someone else get in. And that will take us to the second audio segment. Uh, if you have other comments, what have you, that you want to make sure you get in, uh, you can feel free to uh, make a note, jot it down. We'll get you during the second portion of the program. Uh, we are picking up <clears throat> Blue Skies, uh, that's the chapter we're picking up on uh, for folks. Again, I'm reading the Kindle, so I can't really give you the page number, but it's chapter 11, and, you know, it should be maybe four pages, maybe four or five pages <laughs> within uh, is where we'll be picking up at. Uh, we'll be back. Context of white supremacy. Looking forward to hearing additional commentary. Gary Rivlin, Katrina, After the Flood, second audio segment. I talked a lot with Carl and the White House in those early days, Joe Canazaro said, and Rove had always made it clear to Canazaro that federal dollars for New Orleans were contingent on there being blueprints that they could underwrite. The president had said as much in his Jackson Square speech. The federal government will undertake a close partnership with the states of Louisiana and Mississippi and the city of New Orleans, Bush said, so they can rebuild in a sensible, well-planned way. Whose plan would the president use? The same day, Negan unveiled his blue ribbon panel. The city council announced that it was forming its own advisory group. Negan had given city council president Oliver Thomas a seat on the Bring New Orleans Back Commission, but that didn't stop Thomas and his council allies from championing their own panel. In contrast to the mayor's commission, Thomas said the council's panel would be populated by people who can roll up their sleeves and come out 
with some real recommendations. Concrete stuff that the city can act on. Three weeks later, the governor caused more confusion with the creation of the Louisiana Recovery Authority. This 23-member commission, Blanco announced, would set a body of principles that will guide Louisiana's long-range recovery efforts. Presumably, the governor didn't expect the mayor's commission to put its planning on hold while her appointees worked out those principles. The mayor's panel included two Bush favorites, Canazaro and also Bollinger. Nagin also had a budding friendship with the president. That relationship may explain Bush's decision that October to meet with the mayor's panel for a meal at Baco in the French Quarter. Such was the chaotic state of New Orleans in the fall of 2005 that Boise Bollinger used the president's decision to dine with them as a declaration of victory. I'm thinking that him coming and having dinner with us and talking about what he needs from us differentiates us from other groups, Bollinger boasted. People complained about the makeup of the mayor's commission. Where were the artists or writers or thinkers? The Times-Picayune's Chris Rose asked in a column running under the headline, All the Wrong Visionaries. The mayor had the sense to include a musician among his 17 picks, but inexplicably selected trumpeter Wynton Marsalis, a terrific musician from a highly regarded New Orleans family, but one who had been living in New York for two decades. The head of the city's convention and visitor bureau questioned a panel that lacked a single restaurant owner or hotel executive in a tourist-oriented economy. The commissioners themselves did their share of carping. Many were shocked when the mayor and his people moved them to a big ballroom inside the Sheraton. Hundreds of chairs were set up for spectators and cameras were brought in to broadcast the proceedings on local cable access television. I question that decision, Bollinger said publicly, echoing what other commissioners were saying privately. Their main concern after a couple of meetings was that the cameras were quelling honest debate among them. Already, Bollinger was annoyed with Oliver Thomas, whom he described as always worked up about something and up on his high horse acting like the harmed party. Yet Nagin needed the broadcasts to show the wider world that progress was being made. The cameras remained. The public complained about the commission, but the commission also complained about the public. Its mandate was to have a viable rebuilding plan on the mayor's desk by year's end, but in anxiety-filled New Orleans, the commission served as a proxy for all levels of government. Vexed that no one at FEMA or the Small Business Administration would respond to your requests, frustrated that city officials would still not let you see your home more than a month after Katrina, angry that cleanup crews and other contractors were out-of-towners when New Orleans desperately needed jobs and the business, in a town where residents were desperate for answers, people knew that this group, blessed by the mayor, would be meeting in a Sheraton ballroom every Monday starting at 2 p.m. 
the first hour or so of every meeting would be devoted to housekeeping chores and then the public would be invited to share their ideas for rebuilding New Orleans. Yet rare was the citizen taking a turn at the microphone who actually shared a concept related to the job at hand. We were there to develop a plan for the city, not to talk about who would pick up their trash or to open the schools, complained Tulane University's Scott Cohen. The commission would endure two or three hours of public venting before adjourning until the next week. To get some work done, the commission broke itself into two committees. Cohen was put in charge of education, and Entergy's Dan Packer headed economic development. Given all he had to do, running a bankrupt utility, Packer went outside the commission to choose Bill Hines, the high-profile lawyer, and Negan Confidant as his co-chair. Jimmy Reese led the Committee on Infrastructure, which would dictate the schedule for repairing the city's broken systems. Joe Canazzaro, because he was either brave or foolish, volunteered to chair urban planning. Canazzaro's committee would decide the fate of New Orleans East, Lakeview, and other low-lying neighborhoods. Canazzaro also went outside the commission when he named as his co-chair a local architect named Ray Manning who was black and with the permission of his fellow commissioners he sought to enlist the help of the Urban Land Institute or ULI a nonprofit research organization funded largely through developers like himself. Canazzaro who had served as ULI chairman had seen firsthand how the organization mobilized teams to help after earthquakes, floods, and other disasters. Mr. Chairman, they have the experience and they have the expertise, Canazaro said. They would also bring the more removed perspective of outsiders. In the first half of November, the best and the brightest from around the country would come to the city for what the ULI billed as a summit on dreaming up a smarter, better version of pre-flood New Orleans. The anticipated summit gave the commission a reasonable excuse for putting on hold any discussion of the fate of the city's lowest-lying neighborhoods. Yet rather than wait for the ULI's diagnosis, Oliver Thomas proposed that as a body, they commit to rebuilding the entire city, the Lower Ninth Ward and New Orleans East included. Every commissioner voted in favor of Thomas's resolution except Canazaro, who abstained. I don't want to see people rebuilding on quicksand, Canazaro said during a debate over the vote. I think it's important that we make sure that all of the people in New Orleans East and the Lower Ninth Ward have an opportunity to live in a safe and secure area that is not susceptible to destruction in future disasters. The next morning, he was less diplomatic, eating $25 scrambled eggs in a dining room graced by a chamber music orchestra, Canazaro shook his head over Oliver's grandstand. He groused, I thought the whole idea here was that everything would be on the table.
Chapter 12 Shrink the Footprint Negan was back in his city hall office. His suits and dress clothes, like the rest of his home, had survived Katrina, but for months he continued to dress in his Katrina wear. No matter whom he might be meeting, the president, the governor, Larry King, Negan wore a short-sleeved polo and dress slacks. The mayor chose not to move home and instead secured an apartment in one of the historic Pontalba buildings on Jackson Square, a pair of matching red brick beauties with wrought iron lace balconies that had been built in the 1840s. A common sight in small-town New Orleans was the mayor and a large bodyguard bouncing between his city hall office, a meeting at the Sheraton, and his new digs in the French Quarter just steps from Café du Monde. He always had this glazed look, said one city worker who ran into the mayor regularly. A fragile Ray Nagin was overseeing the city's recovery in the fall of 2005. In early October, the mayor arrived at the Sheraton to address 300 people there for a meeting to help locals get work with the big outside firms descending on New Orleans as part of the cleanup effort. The NAACP, AFL-CIO, and others who had organized the gathering had invited the mayor, hoping he would use his pulpit to convince those outside the city to view the recovery as a vehicle for bringing people home. Instead, the mayor chose at that moment to take a swipe at thousands of Latino laborers who had descended on New Orleans after the storm. People whom most locals, black or white, seemed to appreciate for their willingness to do the miserable work of gutting homes and cleaning out ruined, malodorous restaurants in a hot city. I can see it in your eyes, Negan began. You want to know, how do I take advantage of this incredible opportunity? How do I make sure New Orleans is not overrun with Mexican workers? At a press conference a few days after his Mexican workers' comment, Negan said, Now is the time for us to think out of the box. And Sally Foreman flinched. He had been thinking about the gambling industry, he told the assembled reporters, and all those billions they had to invest. Why not create a casino district in the center of the city? He hoped to enlist the governor's support, he said, perhaps unaware that Blanco had campaigned on a moratorium on new casinos. We're a cash-strapped city, Negan said. I know of no other way. The casino proposal seemed to perturb the uptown establishment as much because the mayor had failed to vet his proposal with them as because of the idea itself. As director of the city's zoo and aquarium, Ron Foreman was a key member of the city's hospitality industry, yet he hadn't heard a thing about a proposal to build as many as six casinos in the center of town until Nagan floated the idea at the press conference. It came from nowhere, and then the next week it was gone, Foreman said. Another Nagan story that had Uptown talking was Nagan's trip to the Capitol and the tongue lashing he took from the city's black legislators. After the meeting, 
Megan was spotted slumped against a wall, half sitting, half standing. I did not sign up for this shit, the mayor cried out. I did not sign up for this shit. Maybe it was just as well that the mayor was out of town when the Urban Land Institute's all-star team of planners, architects, academics, ex-politicians, and others convened in New Orleans that November. Greg McFert, who prior to taking a job at City Hall had founded a pair of encryption technology startups, had rented a place with his wife in Jamaica. Why not join us? McFert asked Nagin. To further entice the mayor, McFert made sure free first-class airplane tickets for Nagin, his wife, and his three children were part of the deal. Feeling he needed another break, Nagin told McFert yes. He would be back in town by week's end when the press would show up at the Sheraton to hear what the ULI had to say. When anyone asked, the mayor's people said their boss was in Washington on city business. Of course, Joe Canazaro was in town that week. He was glad that with his adopted city in crisis, he was in the position to offer them this gift. We need to hear how other people dealt with tragedies of this magnitude, Canazaro said. We need the best minds in this nation on this. Canazaro was back in his office on Poitras. By mid-October, he and Sue Ellen were living again in Old Metairie. The bottom floor of their house had been gutted, but generators had been trucked in so they had power. They limited themselves to the second floor, where Curtis, their houseman, had set up a microwave and a refrigerator for them. But a bad odor lingered in the house and Canazaro started to feel wobbly and run down. The longer they stayed, the more convinced Canazaro became that the mold was making him sick. They lasted maybe two weeks at the old place before Canazaro moved them into a house he found nearby for $850,000. That would serve as their base of operation for the next couple of years as they oversaw reconstruction. No one, of course, was suggesting that parts of Old Metairie revert to green space. Jimmy Reese wouldn't have to find alternative housing for himself. He was back in Audubon Place less than two weeks after Katrina. Bring New Orleans back co-chair Mel Lagarde also slept in his own bed every night. Indeed, his home on St. Charles would serve as the commission's unofficial offices. We were meeting at Mel's house almost every day, said Margaret Beer, hired to serve as the commission's communications person. It was mainly black members of the mayor's panel who needed to make do in temporary digs. Alden McDonald was living in Baton Rouge when he wasn't sleeping in his RV, and Entergy's Dan Packer, whose house had taken on eight feet of water, was living and working out of the Hyatt. Oliver Thomas was living at the Sheraton with several other members of the city council rendered homeless by Katrina. Barbara Major, the panel's other co-chair, had gotten seven feet of water in the ranch-style home she owned in New Orleans East, using her home even as a temporary base while in town wasn't an option. She also had her 14-year-old son and his schooling to consider. She was in Houston because she had a brother there. 
he had found her a house in a good school district that was big enough to accommodate her older son and his family along with assorted in-laws and nieces and nephews needing a place to stay. I tell folk I was a rich white woman for a year, Major said. It was a gated community, so rich the guards at the front gate wore gloves. At first, Major made the weekly five-hour drive to New Orleans for the Monday meetings, but this woman, chosen to represent the average New Orleanian, was as financially stressed and overwhelmed as her constituents. She was perched in a strange city and spending most of her time, or so it seemed, either on the phone with an insurance company or waiting in one line or another for assistance. She wore donated clothes picked up at a giveaway arranged for Katrina survivors and was thankful for the $500 check she received from the Red Cross. FEMA was picking up the rent, but she and her family still had food and other expenses when none of them had paying jobs. Major's insurance company sent her a check for $2,500 for the loss of the use of her home. They sent another $25,000 to cover the contents of her house. That's what we lived on for a long time, Major said. For a time, they were on food stamps. Every trip to New Orleans took another bite out of the insurance check. She footed the bill every time she filled up with gas and the wear and tear on her truck. She also be the cost of the hotel room if she wasn't up to making the 10-hour round trip in a single day. No one gave me a free room when I came to New Orleans for the commission meetings, Major said. No one was buying my meals. Folks don't believe me, but I never got no money from anybody over that. She was the mayor's single nod to the activist set, but she also declared that she didn't have the time or money to spend a week in New Orleans listening to the ULI's planners and architects. Instead, she would show up on the last day of the ULI's visit to hear what they had to say. At that point, Major said, I was seeing my job as stopping bad things from happening. The Urban Land Institute took over the Sheridan the week before Thanksgiving. The 50 or so panelists the ULI had flown to New Orleans were encouraged to take a half-day tour of the city to see the damage for themselves. ULI organizers set up interviews with 300 people described as business owners, decision makers, community activists, and citizens. Yet the organization's final report had the city flooding on Tuesday, August 30th, rather than early Monday morning, as if the deluge had not happened until they saw the pictures on CNN. The panel ULI assembled to help New Orleans were polite guests. They said all the right things about the city and its culture to the 250 people who showed up at the Sheraton on Friday in mid-November 2005 to hear the group's initial assessment. A more formal 71-page report was submitted one month later. The city was a national treasure in the words of one panelist. New Orleans was an international treasure to another. There were pins to the city's people, its spirit, its resilience, and its neighborhoods. 
yet the ULI's message was harsh. New Orleans was doomed. Panelist after panelist said if it didn't overcome a political environment that several described as dysfunctional. The panel chairman, Smeeds York, himself a former mayor, chided city leaders for their lack of urgency. Put aside your bickering, said another elected official. Several also brought up the city's notorious reputation for politicians on the take. The city should create an independent oversight board to control the city's finances for five years, the panel suggested, so outsiders were less hesitant about giving New Orleans billions in bailout money. Coastal restoration needed to be a priority. They also told the city to adopt a living wage ordinance if people were serious about lifting up its poorest citizens. Yet few in the audience that day seemed interested in what the ULI might have to say beyond the future of the lowest-lying neighborhoods. There are areas of the city we're recommending not be rebuilt just now, Smeeds York said early in the presentation. The room shifted. York and his colleagues named three categories of neighborhoods ranging from the most damaged to the least. They recommended that, in the short run, the city only invest in neighborhoods in the least damaged category. That way, the city could revive its crippled economy and start rebuilding its tax base. The head of the ULI went one step further when she suggested that the city forbid individuals from rebuilding in the most damaged areas. The ULI imagined fingers of restored marshland in each low-lying neighborhood for better stormwater management. Green space is the city's most vulnerable neighborhoods should be mapped out before people were allowed to rebuild. Those owning property in areas to be reverted to a natural wetland needed to be compensated, they stressed, and also offered first dibs on homes of those choosing not to return. The ULI didn't go so far as to draw up the maps themselves. It suggested that the city stage planning meetings in the affected areas, provide residents with the same topography maps the ULI had been given, the panelists predicted, and they too would see the wisdom of giving the city thousands of acres in additional parkland along with bike trails and natural wetlands inside the city limits. The panelists didn't single out any neighborhoods that would need to shrink, but they didn't have to. An elevation map of New Orleans was flashed on a screen partway through the presentation. Areas that were at least two feet below sea level, according to the U.S. Geological Survey, were depicted in red. Veins of red appeared in the Lower Ninth Ward and other parts of the city, but the communities of Lakeview, Gentilly, and New Orleans East looked like bloody masses. Joe Conazaro smiled after the ULI's presentation. There would be no more dodging of the tough issues after today, he said. This should get us talking frankly about some of the stuff we need to deal with, particularly extremely low-lying areas and areas where we have a low-income black population, Kanazaro said. But he worried in private. His hope in those first weeks after Katrina was that 
a shared fate would unite a city split between black and white. But his expert panel had convinced him that was a fantasy. The ULI told us that the number one determinant for how a city recovers is its history, Kanazaro said. If, in fact, a city was divided and not really working together and not doing well economically, then it would take a whole lot longer to recover than if everyone was pulling together in the same direction. Katrina didn't mean a do-over for a city that had too many problems prior to the storm. Instead, the ULI said, history was destiny. The hurricane and the flood that followed would only amplify New Orleans' problems. Potential for mass buyouts read the front page headline in the next day's Times-Picayune. The city council's two Cynthia's Cynthia Hedge Morrell and Cynthia Willard Lewis, who between them represented New Orleans East, Gentilly, and the Lower Ninth, slammed the ULI's proposal to eliminate our neighborhoods from New Orleans. Exiting the ballroom after the ULI's presentation, Willard Lewis told reporters that she and her neighbors were not going to allow themselves to be shoved into the back of the bus. A few weeks later, the council approved a resolution requiring the city to invest in every part of New Orleans and not stagger its commitments based on damage assessments. Cassandra Wall and her sisters viewed the ULI's recommendations as perversely cruel. Uptown and the Quarter and the Central Business District had survived Katrina largely intact, yet that's where the city should focus its efforts and resources? Terrell Broussard, an attorney with a downtown firm who owned in the East, had volunteered to monitor the mayor's panel for their organization, East New Orleans United and Whole. At the next Monday meeting, Broussard spoke with scorn about the so-called experts. Seven days, he said, seven days to pass a verdict on a lifetime of work. We deserve better. The reaction was the same in flooded neighborhoods across the city, black or white. The ULI is what really got us religion, said Al Petrie, a member of the board of Lakeview Civic. Petrie and others had been talking regularly by phone, but after the ULI passed its verdict, Freddie Yoder decided they needed to reach out to every connection they had. He invited all the former presidents of Lakeview Civic to a meeting at his offices in Harahan, right outside New Orleans. That included Martin Landrieu, son of Moon Landrieu, and brother to both a U.S. Senator and Louisiana's Lieutenant Governor. They wanted a war. We'd be ready for one, Yoder said. It would kill the black psyche if New Orleans East isn't rebuilt. Cassandra's sister Petey Wall said at a Baton Rouge Applebee's after one Monday night meeting. Think of what it would mean if the city successfully chased off so many African Americans who had money, its doctors and successful business people and lawyers and such. People would no longer feel they had a chance. A sociology professor at Brown University released a study showing that the ULI was talking about land that housed 80% of the city's black population. Lakeview could trace its roots back to the 1910s, 
people in every affected community, black or white, rich or poor, spoke about the property rights they were supposed to enjoy as American citizens. Yet what if the experts were right? What if the right thing to do for the Wall Sisters and the people of Lakeview was to insist they live someplace safer and more practical? The Urban Land Institute had warned against what its experts labeled as the jack-o'-lantern effect, partially occupied blocks that looked like the broken teeth of a carved pumpkin littered with boarded-up homes and empty lots, and also spoke of the importance of geographically right-sizing the city so people weren't spread out. As their experts saw it, a lot of people weren't moving back, and fewer people meant less tax revenue and therefore less money to spend on everything from police and fire to street repairs. Geographers didn't seem to have any trouble reaching a consensus. Craig Colton, who taught geography at LSU, heard from colleagues around the country in the weeks after Katrina. To them, the only question was whether 20% of the city's land mass should revert to wetlands or 40%. I don't know exactly where I would draw the line, but I assume that's what the city is trying to figure out right now, Colton said shortly after the ULI left town. Roughly half the city sat below sea level, Colton said, but that's not to say he would decree half the city out of bounds. A community sitting a few feet below sea level might be deemed an intermediate zone where people would be permitted to rebuild so long as homes were jacked up high enough. The city needs to choose some level below sea level and declare it economically unfeasible to build in areas that are at that elevation or lower, he said. Bruce Sharkey is a professor of landscape architecture at LSU. He, too, thought it would be irresponsible to rebuild all of New Orleans. A couple months after Katrina, he ran into an acquaintance who told him he was already working on his home in Lakeview. Sharkey knew he was supposed to praise the man's pioneer spirit, yet he viewed his colleague as selfish. The government is going to spend, what, $100 billion or more to rebuild New Orleans. And for what, Sharkey asked, if we don't do things differently, it can happen again next year. Michael Liffman was also affiliated with LSU. He was an economist working for a university-based program that promoted smarter stewardship of the state's coastal wetlands. He had lived in New Orleans East in the early 1970s. There are parts of New Orleans that are not fit for human habitation, Liffman declared. They never were and never will be. The best use of the commission's time, he argued, would be to devise formulas for compensating homeowners unlucky enough to own a stretch of the city that would be returned to its natural state. Some thought such ideas were a fool's errand in a town where most long-range planning meant deciding what to do that weekend. There are only two things people around here plan for in an entire year, and that is what costume they're going to wear on Mardi Gras and which Friday they're taking off work to go to Jazz Fest. Times-Picayune columnist Chris Rose wrote that fall. The rest just happens. Yet Liffman was confident that those in charge would force people to move in the name 
of safety. As he saw it, the problem was one of timing. The city needed to settle some fundamental questions even as it was only partially through with what might be called the five stages of New Orleans. Rather than grieving an individual, the city was collectively going through more or less the same phases Elizabeth Kubler-Ross had identified for a person who loses a loved one. Liffman put New Orleans somewhere between denial and anger at around the time the ULI was in town and somewhere between bargaining and depression in the final weeks of 2005. And we will pick up next week at the beginning of chapter 13. Beginning of chapter 13. Right on. Context the white supremacy. Number to dial 641-715-3640. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star 6 if you would like to participate. Uh, we should have ample time. Uh, all the folks who dialed in with a hand up, feel free to chime in. Looking forward to hearing uh, your commentary. Can I be heard, Gus? Yes, ma'am. Okay. Picking up from where I left off on the last part where we were talking about this McDonald's and how he was very frugal. And I must admire this man from coming from his background and deciding that he wants to help the community. And that is what he has done. As he said, he did not use credit ratings as most white institutions would do. He just go from gut feeling as well as the narrative that the people have to say in regards to getting these loans. So and that is a long way. That's how we used to conduct business as a people amongst each other before we allow this European idea of how they, this cutthroat way of capitalism to take control of ourselves. So I'm glad that he still had that kind of old-fashioned touch that he was still applying in his business dealings. Now, um, this, with Ray Lagan and the comment that he made about outsiders, well, Mexicans to come in and do the work, and then he caught a lot of flack for saying that. And that is exactly what happened. A lot of the people, all, a lot of the New Orleans residents who moved downwards to Baton Rouge, La Place, Mandeville, and those outlying areas within which to commute back and forth to take care of their property, they weren't given access to these contracts, these cleanup contracts that came in. They did a lot of hiring out, um, like import a lot of workers where they could pay them off the books or pay them a dirt cheap within which to do the work because that had allowed a lot of the influx for Vietnam, because they had a small community of, of Vietnamese refugees that were settling that here. If you go on up along Black Mine, they had some Vietnamese and Hmong as well as Laotians that came in and were settling that area because that is fishing and the marshland. That is what they're used to coming from that part of 
Southeast Asia, where they are from. So they settled in that area. They did a lot of fishing. And one of, um, one of the key things to remember that they used one of their own at around the same time when Jefferson got into trouble with his money situation, one of them had read, he spent one term in Congress as a congressperson, was Vietnamese, that they used, took, um, he was a Republican, conservative, right before Bobby Jindal, and he was used as a showcase person in there before he came out and came out of Congress. But a lot, as I said, once again, a lot of the contractors, you have these rural people, the ones that they could probably refer to them as gypsies, and the Hispanics, a lot of them, they came in and they gave them a lot of the work and they shut out the black people. Um, another thing is um, the green spaces, because white people are good for their double speech and saying, okay, well, we want to return the area that happened to back to its natural habitat. We don't want to rebuild here. We're going to conserve it. This is along the same line as, as what's, what's commonly referred to as Agenda 21. And a lot of you, y'all should look up, y'all should look that up, Google it, look it up, Agenda 21. Because you saw they did the same thing in South Carolina where they came in and they took over a lot of these um, indigenous black people area, saying they want to reserve it for the owl and the birds and whatever, and the black people have to move out here because we're going to return it back to nature. But this is their way to confiscate your property and saying, okay, that this is what we're going to return it um, to the natural habitat. And in the meantime, where you could work and walk where you live type scenario, but it's not for black people to live in that area. It's a way of they to reclaim it in a way and then push you out of the city, gentrify it, put it the sidewalks, the streets and everything, so that the white people would have access to it. They're not doing this to benefit black people. That is why they were totally discouraging black people from coming back, living sleeping overnight in your property while you do the repair work or prevent looters and from coming in and stealing out stuff that you're putting into your house as you are fixing it. People coming in and was, you know, ripping off people because they see what you're doing during the day and the minute you're gone, they come in and steal out your toilet, your air conditioning, heating, all of these things was going on back there. And then it was try and then sell it to you later on and say, okay, well, we have this stuff. You could get it for cheap. But that is part of the, um, what was going on there. The next thing is on um, with Ray Nagan and this trip that he took with his family to Jamaica, and that's another another nail that was knocked into his coffin with him, which was used later on in in trapping him and getting him convicted. Because here's all of this stuff going on, and this man offered him um him and his entire family a trip to Jamaica, and he decided to go ahead and he took it and he went off. So this is once again is showing poor leadership on his part that. He fell for the bait, and he went off with these people, these same white people who were going to turn, turn on him later on. And um, someone, I believe it was Karma had mentioned about how a lot of the people who moved off and went to Atlanta, and they thought that, okay, they had it better there, even though they came in from a predominant home ownership in New Orleans to go up to Atlanta and end up renting and going into all of that. That is, the, that is the thing that has been sold to black people. Oh, you could all uh, make it in Atlanta. Um, you, it's, it's the so-called black Mecca. You have all of we these celebrities. We are for sure off topic now. No, I, I, I don't mean to but I'm just saying that is what was sold to a lot of them that came there, and they decided to stay there instead of coming back and reclaiming their property because they were sold this thing because a lot of it has to do with a lot of the churches that a lot of people were affiliated with down there. For one thing, Bishop Paul S. Morton, 
he moved the congregation headquarters from New Orleans and he moved it to Atlanta. So a lot of people who were affiliated with him, they end up following him and they end up moving to Atlanta and they decided not to come back to New Orleans. So that is what kind of um, created that shift where a lot of people decided to go up that way and stay there and not come back. I'll, I'll pause there and let others get in. Everybody else who had a hand up, line should be open. Feel free. Well, that was that was four oh four. Yes. But anyway, to piggyback on that, yes, that is exactly what goes on when they do the conservation. I mean, I, I didn't even realize they were doing that in New Orleans, but that is a practice that is going on everywhere it's 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 why you keep hearing about people in africa who can't get to water because that area where they live is under conservation so <laughs> they can't they can't avail themselves of any of their resources and i just i said oh i just thought it was an african problem but i guess now they're doing it in the cities where black people live they're saying oh this area is, you know, under conservatorship. We're just going to make this a really natural green space and you can't get to your homes or your water or your relatives or your or your possessions or anything. I just, uh, I'm astounded that the same practice they, that has been, that has devastated original people and um, indigenous people everywhere in every continent is being used now in the cities, and these are just for nomadic people. I mean, it's just the same tactics just work on us wherever we are. And it's just, it's, I'm just astounded by that. I hadn't thought about that. I'm, I'm done. Thank you. Right. Other folks with us have comments? Feel free to chime in. The other folks who had hands up, y'all had no comments on the uh, second portion of the book? Maybe they are not able to uh, participate presently. We will uh, check in down the road, see if they have anything they would like to share then. Um, Just from the first audio segment, I too thought it was really important. I think I had mentioned that on the program yesterday. Uh, that a lot of the things that happened, uh, and I think we're going to get more detail as the book goes on, a lot of those things were already in place. I think we got through in this uh, first audio segment uh, about the public schools, that that, uh, Governor Blanco, that that was already a project that she had been working on and setting up the recovery school district, that that was something that was in place before uh, Katrina. And as I, I think I said on the program yesterday, this just allowed white people to accelerate a lot of things that they wanted to do anyway, uh, that, you know, in most instances, in my opinion, uh, did not work out well for black people. Things that just hammered, uh, black citizens of new Orleans in a variety of ways, but that will be, uh, continuing as we move along. Um, and also, yeah, I think, uh, 404 had mentioned about, uh, Alden McDonald and the things he was trying to do with the bank to help out uh, black New Orleans uh, citizens. I thought that was uh, important as well. 
more of the things that came up during the second uh, audio clip, the foreshadowing I thought they should have had, uh, like the sound effect, the dun-dun-dun, when they talked about the trip that Ray Nagin took, a uh, free trip uh, that Mr. Uh, Mafert provided for Ray Nagin and his family to go down to Jamaica. Like, man, and it, it, that's kind of what I've been saying the whole way through as we've been plotting along with this book and, you know, other times that we talked about this, including yesterday when uh, Professor June Cross was on the program. How is it that, you know, none of these white people are culpable? Like, if Ray Nagin got what he deserved, what does Mr. Mafert deserve? What does uh, Jimmy Reese deserve? He's one of the people that bankrolled uh, Nagin's uh, campaign. What about Mr. Phelps with the Times-Picayune? What does he deserve? Did anything bad happen to them? Because as far as I can tell, none of these white people uh, had anything bad happen to them. And, and this is this is one of the few instances where we can talk about an instance of racism, white supremacy, where white people, it seems, might be showcasing a non-white person, right, and pretending that they are in charge. They got this title where you can actually go and name. You don't have to, you know, well, I think it might be or shadow government. No, no, no. You can just call these people by name. Mr. Murfert got the trip. Jimmy Reese was one of the benefactors. Mr. Phelps. Times. I mean, you can just go down and listen. Just name uh, the people that were involved in this. And I'm sure that they are others I, I just that should be at the forefront of all discussions around all of this what level of culpability do they bear and everything that played out even i think they have some of the passages i'll read them as i pick out some of the things that i highlight right on time where they talked about it kind of at the beginning of the second audio clip some of these white benefactors uh says the casino proposal seemed to perturb the uptown establishment as much because the mayor had failed to vet his proposal with them as of the idea itself. As director of the city's zoo and aquarium, Ron Foreman was a key member of the city's hospitality industry, yet he hadn't heard a thing about a proposal to build as many as six casinos in the center of town until Negan floated the idea at the press conference. That sort of thing right there. And that's what I said about everything. We talked about the uh, evacuation order, the mandatory evacuation of New Orleans for Katrina, and people fussing at Ray Nagin and saying that he should have done it sooner. If there is indeed a system of white supremacy, then you as a non-white person are not in charge. Therefore, you have to answer to white people. It's Mr. Foreman and his wife, Sally Foreman, she's on Mr. Nagin's staff, but Ron Foreman, uh, he said, wait a minute, this nigga did not clear this with us before going out and talking what is going on here have you forgotten your place that's the, exactly the way that it reads uh to me and that's what i'm saying he has to get this stuff cleared uh and these white people that are really in charge they should be the ones that get any blame for anything that had even mayor Negan uh, being in this spot to begin with um let's see yeah we already got the trips to jamaica the foreshadowing there something else i missed out yeah, I thought that was important, too, because I have heard other black people. That even comes up uh, in Spike Lee's second documentary, uh, If God is Willing and the Creek Don't Rise, about the white people bringing in. Uh, and I, even some of the black people that I have heard present, they said it just that way. White people brought in these non-white people uh, to do this work, quote unquote Latinos, to do this work. Uh, and black people were totally barred from getting any of these type of uh, reconstruction jobs and participating uh, in rebuilding uh, the city. Uh, they talked about that. And, and even some of the black people that I heard 
uh, they were very specific and saying, I don't have any beef with the Latinos. The problem is white people. <laughs> like they put it squarely the way uh, it, the people that are most to blame for this problem being here in the first place. Um, I thought with Conazaro, I brought this point up uh, during the after the first uh, audio segment about Joe Conazaro and how I thought Rivlin is presenting different white people as though, hey, these are good white people. They are not racist. Look at what they're trying to do. I said that about Conazaro, even though he said before about him having Curtis, his black uh, I guess waiter, the help that stays at his house, stayed at his house during the storm and is calling him as the water is rising, threatening his life. He's calling to give him updates as they're chilling at their little, you know, palace where they went to hang out during uh, the flooding and all. But the portion where he says Conazaro also went outside the commission when he named as his co-chair a local architect named Ray Manning who was black. So of course he can't be racist. I uh, just I feel like there's uh, a lot of that sort of thing. And I mean, it's it's easy. We just talked about this with Ray Nagin. It's easy to put a black person up. And say, oh, OK, you're going to be the co-chair of this commission. You're going to be the mayor of this town. You're going to be the president of the United States and pretend that you are in charge when white people know that that is not the case. It's very easy. And in this case, I think sometimes they do it so that they can say, see, I'm not racist. I voted for Obama. See, I'm not racist. I named Mr. Ray Manning, black architect. I named him as a co-chair. Uh, also, let's see, the, he mentions Katrina time in one of the footnotes that is important. We talked about the prison, uh, prison situation, uh, before in some of our previous, uh, programs. Uh, I will get in one more, uh, before I get to some of the other folks that dialed in. Um, let's see. Mr. Conazaro. Uh, the whole green space uh, issue, uh, that is even more interesting now because 10 years after all of that, if you look at a lot of the reports now, particularly uh, scientists, geologists who are studying uh, New Orleans and the rising sea levels, uh, there's at least it seems to me a growing number of scientists are saying that they, they think it's pretty much a done deal, that New Orleans is not going to be there in 300 years, maybe sooner than that, but definitely 300 years. They think all of this is gone. Uh, it's apparently uh, still sinking the city. So more portions of the city are below sea level. I cannot imagine them coming to uh, reevaluate and reassess and say, well, oh my, since a dramatic portion of the city uh, is sinking more. So now more, a greater portion of the city is below sea level that, you know, now we have to have more uh, green spaces and you all aren't going to be able to build or you have to make these repairs uh, to your house immediately. Uh, if you want any sort of uh, insurance or what have you for you, I couldn't imagine them uh, doing such a thing. It's just, again, it's just going to be strategically something that is going to attack black people. Uh, and I mean, there were so many levels of that. We'll get to more of that as we, as we proceed with the, uh, with the book. Um, I will stop there. Yeah, I will stop there. I did think it was important as well when they gave out this list uh, from the ULI about also their suggestion that they not only have these quote unquote green spaces, but also forbid people uh, from rebuilding in the most damaged areas. That was the point. I think when they gave that language that they their recommendation was that people not or that they invest in terms of rebuilding. They invest first in the areas that had the least amount of damage, and then that they forbid people from rebuilding uh, in areas that had the most damage. 
Uh, since black people were disproportionately harmed, Mr. Rivlin presents that at the beginning of the book, black people were significantly more likely to have major dam uh, damage to their houses, if not losing the house outright. Black people were much more likely as a result of years of white terrorism in terms of restricting where black people could purchase houses. Uh, putting them in low flood prone areas, uh, that that is just another act to continue racism, white supremacy. And in my opinion, they would have to know that this is going to disproportionately impact black people. These are not dumb people. Joe Conazaro is not a stupid uh, white, per uh, white person, contrary to popular opinion about racists being dumb. He's not stupid. He has to know that these areas uh, that they have marked and say, OK, we're just going to make this swamp land and, you know, keep it pushing that this is going to disproportionately dislocate a large population of black people. And hey, cool in the game. <laughs> I will stop there. Uh, the other folks that dialed in that I had a hand up. Uh, did you all have comments you want to make sure you got in? Sure. Can I be heard? Oh, yes, sir. We can hear you. Yes, um, yes. Um, 4-4 was right on point with, um, when she said the green spaces, um, agenda 21, you know, the green agenda, that's a big white supremacist plan they have to depopulate huge portions of the non-white populations. And, um, lastly, um, in the first part, when they said that the evidence from was underwater, so they just was, took all those people and put them in various prisons. No due process. You know, they there. We don't have the evidence anymore, but we just done a whole job until we can figure out what to do with you, you know. It's just terrible. Uh, my mind thinks. Katrina time, as they called it. That was the term. As a, he, does, he includes a footnote about that but there's a lot of uh research on that people that you know ended up being uh in prison who you know weren't even ever convicted of anything and they ended up being in prison for uh, almost a half a year eight months uh in some cases uh folks going to uh, angola uh the state infamous uh state prison in uh, louisiana uh, just horror. i think they even sent some female uh inmates to uh, angola it's a male prison in Louisiana, but they even sent some females there. I mean, it was just horrendous all the way around. We did the program before. I talked all about that. Um, one other uh, quick line, uh, Connor Zarward says that uh, he hoped in the first weeks after Katrina, uh, his hope was that a shared fate would unite a city split between black and white, but his expert panel had convinced him that was a fantasy. ULI told us the number one determinant for how a city recovers is its history uh, and again i just joe conazaro is not a stupid you know white person nothing about you know what they have shared in this book suggests to me that this is a dumb white person i don't think he would you know be somebody that's hanging out and having contact with carl rove and able to come in and run this commission and what have you i don't think uh that you know this is an ignorant white person so he has to know uh, that the system of racism and white supremacy is in effect. I'm sure he reads the Wall Street Journal. He has to already know. They've already said <laughs> months in advance, days, literally, after the storm. Jimmy Reese and company, 
forget these black people. Good riddance to the trash. You know, we are moving forward and, you know, this place is going to look, they've already said that. So, I mean, it's no way you can say truthfully, oh man, I hope, you know, Jimmy Reese and all of us, we can come together. And I mean, that is just, that's not even believable. Uh, so I, I, I can only conclude this is just him practicing racism, white supremacy and saying, uh, just uttering total nonsense, uh, that, you know, what, which white people do on a regular basis. Um, last few minutes any other folks have comments they want to make sure they got in yes i do um i like people to keep in mind that i do think that um people of european descent seem to have a uniquely high black mentality and that goes completely with their desire sincere desire to build in and build up that is a high. That's how you make a high. You do layer on top of layer on top of layer, and you bring it in. That is a high. Europeans just, it's just how they roll. I mean, it's just, they just love that high mentality. And let me see. The other thing is, um, oh, sorry. I can't remember what it was. Anyway, but I don't know. I think the high mentality is still important. Uh, Can I be heard? Yes, ma'am. Uh, one other thing to add on, I believe it was Thomas from New York had mentioned about Mr. McDonald and his banking system. He didn't have it backed up. Uh, in the first reading, Mr. McDonald did back up his system. Matter of fact, he triple backed it up. But the problem was that his, it was stuck in Memphis with the FedEx because of the, um, the airports being closed as a result of all of the storms coming in. So the tape that he had uh, was to send to Philadelphia. That was stuck in Memphis and could not get out to get to Philadelphia for them to upload it. But he did, he was very thorough in everything that he did. He sent one to, I believe one of his, his executives had a tape, a, um, a current tape, as well as the one that he shipped out. So he had at least about three of his backups for his banks. He had us in triplicate in, in order to ensure that all of his information was current. So he was not foolish. He did plan for it. And to what um, Karma was stating, yes, because you're seeing the same thing with Agenda 21, the same things going on in the Amazon and all these different rainforests where they're moving on a lot of the indigenous people and saying, okay, they have to save the owls and all of these different exotic birds to, um, to preserve it as well as other wildlife. So this is not something that's happening on the African continent. It's happening here in the United States as well as in parts of South America, Australia, you name it, all over the place. That is what the white people are doing because they are trying to control the space. And also with New Orleans and with what they are doing in order to depopulate that area. Don't forget that the, the, the U.S. has weather manipulating um, things on, the, on, the, on hand, such as the heart system, which can create artificial um, hurricanes as well as earthquakes, because that is one of those things that they said was used, possibly used in Haiti to create that earthquake in Haiti. So whatever it is, because there's oil and gas that was discovered in that area. So if they go ahead and they reclaim that area and let it get taken over with the Mississippi and the auto um, wildlife, they can still bring in their oil drilling equipment and go ahead and extract the oil and gas from in that area. 
So they're not coming up on a loss if they do that. They're going to be making money because they want those people gone anyway so they could get tapped into that resources that's on the ground. May I ask a question? Was the French Quarter originally owned by non-white people? Uh, I'm not sure. <laughs> no, uh, <laughs> man, yeah, I'm not sure. Oh, okay. Yes, it was. The majority of the French Quarter, Congo Square, which is why they call it Congo Square in reference to yeah. part of Central Africa, that's where a lot of the indigenous so-called blacks, the free blacks, they used to be in that area. That's, that's their area because it's right down from each other. Cafe du Monde is right along, right down from Congo Square and the French Quarter. So that used to be um, blacks used to live in that area before the white people decided to, of course, you know, do the shuffle as they normally do when they see something there and they want it. They go ahead and come up with schemes to get you gone so they could take it over. Thank you. Right on. Uh, we ended Chapter 13 this week, Clean End. Uh, so we'll pick up on Chapter 14 uh, for next week, uh, same time, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. Uh, we should be here uh, Saturday, tomorrow, uh, compensatory call-in, 9 p.m. Eastern, 6 p.m. Uh, Pacific. Uh, Dr. Francis Cress Welsing should be here on Sunday. Uh, will be an hour earlier than the normal uh, program time, uh, which is uh, 7 Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific. Uh, this Sunday, uh, Dr. Welsing will be here. Uh, Pam should be here uh, this coming Wednesday. And uh, we should have a white male on the program uh, this coming Thursday. So should be active uh, moving forward into autumn. Uh, just stay tuned. Uh, we'll be on every day for a while, so you can just... Keep it locked in. Hopefully we'll have constructive uh, information. If you get confused, can't find something, have a suggestion, feel free, drop an email, and we will try to help as best we can. Uh, on Twitter, at Until Justice, at Until Justice. Thanks again for the folks uh, who tuned in. Hope you got something uh, constructive studying all this, and uh, we'll be moving forward with the book next week. Should be closing in on the halfway point. Uh, thank you. We'll see everybody in about 24 hours. Uh, remain codified. Buckle up if you're going to be in the vehicle. Do everything we can to minimize contact with enforcement officers. Sobriety would be best under conditions of white terrorism. Uh, you definitely don't want to be under the influence behind the wheel. You don't want to be in the presence of intoxicated white folks. Don't even really want to be around that many intoxicated non-white people. Uh, just creates a lot of unnecessary chaos frequently and we already have ample amounts of that because of white folks that said creator we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people victims of white supremacy we ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times in all places, each and every time we are in contact with another black person. It has been time. Replace white supremacy with justice immediately. Cows signing out. Nigga, you so brainwashed. I'm a victim, brother.
a victim. I'm a victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my condition. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.